right, everybody, shalom, and welcome to the Shai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom, and welcome to Malka Fleischer. Hello there, hello. Malka, and I want to wish you a congratulations. First, it's almost the birthday of our eldest daughter, Leah. And Baruch Hashem Mazal Tov. And also, um, it's almost our Aliyah anniversary day. Aliyah anniversary. Aliyah anniversary. And that's really great. That's and really exciting. Baruch it happens Hashem. to be that, um, I've talked about this before, uh, I worked very hard on a law that I came up with in my head, which was Aliyah Day, uh, and through a long story where I learned a lot and I, I tried to pass a law, and I went through a, a, a Knesset member that I was working for at the time, but he was in opposition, Yaakov Ketzela Katz, the head of the, uh, what was it called at the time? National uh, Union, I think. National Union, was it that, or was it religious? Uh, some form of religious Zionist, in any case, um, that bill didn't didn't pass, but later another bill was rewritten, taken that law that I wrote, rewritten, that passed, and today the 7th of Cheshvan. Well, but your date was picked. My, my, my date was picked, but more, most ironically is that it's the exact date of our Ali anniversary, right. the 7th, so nice. the 6th. We left the 6th, we came on the 7th of Cheshvan to Eretz Yisrael, and uh, that's really happening uh, this coming week, so Mazal Tov for you on that. Yes, and Mazal Tov, it's yes. All, I think it's... Is it 19, good? 19. 19 years? That's great, that's amazing. Yeah, because we had our 20th wedding anniversary. Right, so it was one year apart. One year right. less than that, yeah. Uh, also, uh, next week, Malka, is uh, elections here in Israel. Yes, exciting. Very exciting, of. we'll talk about that in a second. And this Shabbat is one of my favorites, uh, the Torah portion of Noah. But I'm sweating. Why are you sweating, Malka? Because the pressure's on. Last week, you put up a picture on Twitter, I think also on Facebook, but definitely on Twitter, of the ribs that I made for Parsha Bereshit. I usually do not cook along with the Parsha, but But we now, talk about it every year, and now you, then you Now it, it happens. So so last time, I made these like two beautiful fishes uh, for, for Parsha Bereshit, and I made uh, ribs, a.k.a. Right. lamb chops. It looked, like, it looked like the Pisces sign. It was so good, the two fish. They were very good. Uh, what's it called? Labrak. In Hebrew, which That's I think right. is sea bass, these mm-hmm. little not big, not big fishes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, they were very Ill, good. ill-tempered sea bass. In fact, I don't get it. Don't worry about it. Go ahead. Okay. Anyway, so is that from something? Don't worry about it. Go ahead. All right. So this week, not only do we have the Leia birthday with God's help, Admevesrim, but now I have to make rainbow stuff, right? Or two by two. Maybe I should make. Maybe I should make like two chickens. Hold on, hold on. We'll, we'll and put like, them next to each other. <laughs> I think that's a little cynical. Two chickens. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's not nice. I think you want. But you know, it, it's known that that Noah brought all the animals into the ark two by two, but the kosher animals he brought in six by six. Seven by seven. Seven by seven. Seven by seven. That's right. Because um, one for a korban. First thing is, I really want to. I'm. I'm. There's. So there's, it's not so crazy to cook because that was like the whole thing. There's a lot of people nice in the country animals. that are very excited about Parshat Noach, the Torah portion of Noach, because I've seen these flags, these like rainbow flags out there, and people are just so excited to celebrate. They put out these flags, I think, before the this Torah portion, and they're out there flapping, and people are like, "Woo, Torah portion of Noach!" <laughs> is that is that right? So right, it's like, and also, how do you do a Parshat Noach? today in a tasteful way because am i gonna festoon the house with rainbow flags i i that will, seems like on the face of it that seems like a bad idea i will never give the rainbow away 
I'm sorry. I don't know if it's like a giveaway or if it's a takeaway. But you know what? There are other signs that could be uh, that could be for for Torah portion of Noah. It could be like clouds. I think if you stick the clouds on. Oh, you know what? You're... I think if you put clouds with it, ah. then you get to get it back. Oh, I wonder what that means. That's okay. Cloudy with the chance. You know of what rainbow. I'm saying? If you do the like little. I got you a little cloud. I got you. I want to tell you something that Rabbi Yoni told me. He's a rabbi, Chabad rabbi in. The, Mar- the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs, the Maratha Machpelah, yeah. he told me yesterday that um, Noah sent out two birds, uh, first the raven yeah. and then the pigeon. Mm-hmm. And he goes, this symbolizes to this day that wherever you see a place that has full of pigeons, it's generally a holy place. I think it was a Yonah, Ishai. I don't know if we call them a pigeon. They're supposed to be called a dove. There's no pigeon of peace. Right. I meant a dove, Okay. <laughs> so like all over New York that's like a good sign well he said he, here in Israel anyway he said he said like if you go to the Marat Machpelah and to the Kotel there are, there are doves 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 and and then if you go to less holy places there are more of these ravens okay like the Supreme oh, Court saying- so <laughs> it's got it's got a lot of these uh, okay. ravens but anyway it's an interesting thing but you can you can pick you can pick other you can pick other signs of course there's the another f- famous sign of Noah is the dove with the olive branch that's a good sign, isn't it? Did you? Uh, want, how about, wait a second. What, wait, where did all of our signs go? Wait a minute. How about a how about a dove? We can't use that either. Wait a, a dove with an olive branch over a rainbow. <laughs> I think that that's beautiful. It says so much. Okay. Wow. Okay. Maybe we'll just drink a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's I'll def- pour water on the table. Yeah, that's right. Or on the floor. Just throw it on the kids. Spritz them. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's have I a little water think about guns. that. Or you we'll can do have water guns. I'll be like, here's dessert. That's like, good. That's good. Spray idea. right in their that's face. Good. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Uh, another like thing. Another thing you could do is. Wow, this is fun. We're really. This is live. This is live thought process. We're. Well, welcome to the. Yeah. To the show. Yeah. Um, the other thing you could do is one of my favorite midrashim, and I told this once, and Arya Bramowitz really liked it, which is that uh, one of the animals that was on the ark was actually outside of the ark. It was not an animal. It was a giant named Og. And Og, the giant, who later became the king of the Golan Heights area right. and was and Moses fought, uh, the Medrash says that he was hanging onto the back of the ark and Noah had a little hole that he would put food out and feed this guy, Og, the giant. Okay. On the psychological level, what I think this means is that we carry our monsters with us. Mm. We're trying to go into the new world, and yet somehow we still feed that little monster, and it's a big monster, and it's like we're, we're on the ark, and this giant monster of evil is still hanging on, and we're feeding it. We're feeding it. That's why we give money to the Palestinian Authority, who are the neo-Nazis of today. There's a monster. It's hanging on to us, and we're feeding it. We're always feeding that little monster that's coming with us. We thought that we had made it through the Holocaust onto the safety of the land of Israel, on towards the Third Temple period, and yet we carry with us that same vestige of evil from the old world. It's still with us, and we feed it. And, of course, these people are also Holocaust deniers, and they're all, this, all the stuff, it's the same thing. It's the same, same DNA that we've kept alive, and we keep that thing alive. So you can make an og cake, just a giant cake if you want, a big hmm. giant cake, og cake. I don't know. You could also make. Oh, you could also. I bought a lot of fruit. 
I feel like maybe I'll try to do something colorful. You know, you could do that, or you can make a cake and put a lot of little animals, like toy animals, Cute. on it. Yep, we could do that. Could do that. Could do that. Okay, 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 yeah, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Okay, think about it. What are you guys gonna do? You can write into us. That's right, Ishai at ishaifleischer.com or go to our website ishaifleischer.com and connect with us. Let us know what you're gonna make. Um, uh, Malka, uh, today's show is actually dedicated, dedicated to our good friend Leah Batsara. She should have a refuah shleima. She's a good friend of ours in Yerushalayim, Yer Kodesh. Yes, amen. Uh, and Leah and David are great people. And we want to bless her with real full strength, full recovery, full awesomeness. Uh, and thank you very much for being part of our life. And we really want to dedicate to you health. And I just want everybody to say amen, amen. Uh, for health to Leah Batsara. Um, so that's that. What, what what did you say? It was It's election week? Is that what you said, Malka? Yeah, we're, we're just right up on it. Right. Like the truth is, is that I haven't had as much time to think about the Torah portion of Noah, which I like to think about. Right. I love the image well, of this, the ark. Well, it's because you're trying to get the Jews up onto the ark. <clears throat> right. Both, right. You know. That's right. You know, I've always thought that the Maratha Machpelah, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs, is a little bit like the ark, two by two. Mm. And this thing that has weathered right, it's time. it's big and brown. And it's also weathered time, right? You see, nothing's ever destroyed it. Right. And, it's, and it kind of is this kind of encompassed thing. I, I always think that the ark is very symbolic. It's got a symbolism of this like seed that you can't break. Mm. And that's what the Marta Machpelah is, is, is also. Uh, but the, uh, the um, vicissitudes of the stormy weather is out there. And we are in the midst of a political uh, campaign right now. The fifth round Israel's gone to. And it, you know, who knows? It might very well go into a sixth round. I've, I, my gut feeling is not, but that's just a feeling. I can't back Wait, it why up. Why is this the fifth round? We're going to a new election. Uh, uh, that's right. We had four elections oh, yeah. in a row within, within, within I say, I say short you're saying, span. Within a short amount of time, right? Yeah, and we're going into a fifth round because we, we had a hung you know, we had a, a makeshift type of government in the last government that kind of like was not really representative of the will, will of the people and just kind of got together with the Arabs and with this and that and with a, with a minority prime minister. All, like, all kinds of crazy stuff happened. Now we're going to yet another elections. Netanyahu is coming back strong maybe. And uh, and I'm working with, with the Ben Gvir campaign of the Religious Zionist Party. And like, you know, it, it's intense out there. Campaigning is very, very intense business. It's very intense business out there. Um and Ishai, but you have to answer the big question. You're like you're like moving through all this stuff, but you, you stopped at, a, at an important moment. You you need to stop at one place, which is that I think people want to know how you came to the conclusion that you want to support this candidate to such a degree, Ben uh, Itamar Ben Gvir and the the whole uh, national religious uh, the religious Zionist party. Uh, you know, you have not you have not been an active part of a campaign before. Um, I mean, you've you've supported candidates and you've voted and you've told and people what you I, think. And I've run for. I was on two Knesset lists. Martha. Right, but I was number seven okay. at Atida Chad Ethiopian Party, and I was on. Uh, I was going to have right, a good but number. that was you running as your own candidate. I'm talking about you supporting right. somebody else, right? Um, to such a degree that you're like working with the campaign and talking about it openly. And, you know, over the last few days, especially in the English speaking world here in Israel, there's been a lot of uproar over like, how can it be that people are voting for this candidate because they see him as, as very severe, as very anti, anti-Arab, anti-gay, um, anti- um, peace 
They see him as a guy. There are things that come up and up again. The Baruch Goldstein picture on the wall, threatening kind of attitude toward uh, Yitzhak Rabin, a former prime minister who was ultimately assassinated. His uh, rejection by the IDF. They didn't want him to... Uh, they didn't accept him as a soldier because of his strong political opinions mm-hmm. um, at that time. Um, and so some people might say, Ishai, like, you're an extremist. Like, what are you doing supporting a guy like this when we have people like, I don't know, like Benjamin Netanyahu, when we have people like Ayala Chaked, when we have, you know, other parties that are way more palatable. Ayala Shaked is not a palatable party. She's part of the cabal of the uh, Bennett failed government that allowed the Arabs in, gave 54 million shekel, billion shekel uh, to the Arabs, and uh, actually th- 53 billion shekel wow, 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 wow. Uh, to the you know Negev and to, and to normalization of Bedouin land theft in the South and towards a party that supports... Uh, uh, the, is supported by the Isla- Islamic Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so, and Ayala Chaked is now polling under 1.8%, which means that she's probably not going to pass the uh, minimum threshold. And with regarding to Benjamin Netanyahu, he's, we, we all hope, not all of us, uh, we hope, I hope that he's going to be uh, the next prime minister. I hope he b- behaves properly and does does what he's actually being called to do, which is nationalistic things and not land giveaway and not uh, weakness. Uh, maybe also help with the uh, with the economic situation. Also, by the way, to not force us to take COVID vaccines and to you know uh, be the the first to 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 sell out our data and and our bodies to to some uh, Pfizer organization. He should be on the, on the other hand, really you know punished for that kind of stuff. But okay, well, this is what we got. That's the truth. And politics is not the game of the best leader. It's like the game of the least of the worst leaders. Right. And and uh, uh, all all the stuff that you mentioned about Itamar Benkvir. Uh, he's answered all those things very, very strongly, I think. First is that he really does come from a more radical tradition uh, of really pushing out the forces that have foisted wars upon us, wars of annihilation, 1948 and 67 and 73 and then the, all the terror wars that we faced. So he comes from a tradition, which is Rav Kahana tradition, to, to, to push back against that strong. Uh, my parents were rescued from the Soviet Union by the leadership of, of, of Rav Kahana, who employed a kind of intense, you know, activism, including shooting at the Russian ambassadors uh, to get them, you know, to be afraid, to understand that the Russian right, Jews should be... Right, very undiplomatic style. Right. right. Now, now Itamar Ben-Gvir has become, since then, uh, he yes, he, he was denied to go to the army, and yes, he was also once convicted of putting some racist sticker somewhere. Mm-hmm. But since then, he's become one of Israel's most influential and dominating defense attorneys uh, litigating many Supreme Court cases and being victorious, really fighting for soldiers' rights when they've shot at terrorists uh, and then got in trouble with uh, the, the laws of engagement or police brutality and other things like that. He, I've, I've personally met many people already who have told me how he came in and really fought with them and became like a legal aid society for Jewish rights uh, and, for, and for fairness. And today he stands not against Arabs, but against jihadism. And jihadism is something that we all feel. 
it's real. Like we, you and I have many times had run-ins with jihadism. We live a life with the consciousness of jihadism. We don't we don't we don't stop the car and walk up a mountain no. when we just want to look at it because we're afraid of right. Of and certainly, if and my jihadism. kid told me that he wants to hike from over here to way over there, I would just be like, no. Right, because there's because 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 someone might attack and kill him on the way. Right, because because who has we, to think about these things? We we live in an area right now. Just as I'm, I'm looking right now, I'm just remembering. The the interchange here at Gush Etzion, that's where the three boys were kidnapped and murdered. That's right. where Ari Fold was murdered. That's right here. Right here. Uh, that's where that young soldier Schwartz, all these people were murdered right here, right, right here. We know, we know what we're facing. And how many business people have told me that they pay protection money? Really? Yes. Especially, especially uh, construction people. Uh, they tell me, yeah, you have to pay c- c- protection money to make it around here. Wow! And especially in the north and the south, how many, how many of us all drive in in defended vehicles because we're afraid of rock throwing? Uh, how many of us stand in line in checkpoints because all these cars have to be checked because there's like terrorism in this land? Right. You know what I mean? How how hard is it to go to the Temple Mount and pray because they don't allow you to pray because they're afraid that that might anger the Arabs? Uh, you know, the biggest issue is should we be able to blow a chauffeur somewhere in Jerusalem because it might stir up the Muslims? Yair Lapid literally said that. It's like it's like it's going to stir up the Muslims if you if you blow the chauffeur somewhere in Jerusalem. So we live with this thing. We live with this giant monster of hate and evil around us. And Itamar Ben-Gvir is not calling to solve the economic problems. I don't think which he's, are important. Which are important. I don't think he's touching the COVID issues and the and the vaccine issues. He's dealing with one specific issue, which is the jihadism that's in our midst, and trying to solve that and to strengthen our police and strengthen our soldiers and and weaken the 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 liberal so called so-called uh, liberal agenda that uh, that uh, that 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 emasculates our our soldiers and and doesn't allow them to fire back makes them afraid and th- that that whole atmosphere that whole milieu in which in which our country is being you know uh, i just saw one of his tweets right now where do you know that the the over 50% of who's being hired in the israeli police now are israeli arabs I did not and the number know that. and the number one group that's retiring from the police and leaving the police is Israeli Jews. Wow. So we have a situation, and why is that? Because people why don't feel, because people are not excited to serve in our police because they feel that they're going to be hamstrung and they feel that they're going to be like in this kind of more like corrupty kind of uh, atmosphere. So the fe- people that know how to use that kind of corruption are the ones that are going in and they're the ones that are going to be the administrators of, of the law of Israel. Not a good idea. And so here comes Itamar Ben-Gvir, a defense attorney, and he's out there and he's saying, I want to do something about that. And I myself, by the way, is, is Itamar Ben-Gvir the man? Is he going to solve everything? Is he going to fix no. everything? Is he Mashiach? Well, you know what? Is, as a campaigner, the answer is absolutely. Like this guy's <laughs> going to do everything to fix everything, okay? As a realistic person that's a voter, I say, you know what? We got to put in the best people in the best positions to do good things, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta work to make things five percent better, maybe ten percent better. And if 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 Itamar Ben Gvir would would make the situation five percent better, that would be amazing. And if he got ten percent better, that would right. be unbelievable. He's a Temple Mount guy. He's a Jewish rights guy, and he says this over and over again. It's one hundred percent correct. The jihad attacks Arabs first. They are the victims of the jihad all the time. It's horrible. And you know the truth is, you see it so often. Also, even amongst these terrorists. These like low level terrorists, you know, the women who walk up to the 
to the soldiers with a knife and they're walking for for 15 feet and they're like holding up this knife so oftentimes the case is that they do they do these things because there's some kind of a family uh, a major family problem and they have to commit they basically have to kill themselves or be killed so they go out killing themselves as a as a jihad as a as a martyr they get money for their families from the Palestinian authority they go out with honor as opposed to uh, just being murdered by their their brother or their husband and they uh you know they live in this society in which they have no outs that's right. Basically, they That's don't right. have they don't have outs. They have they have Hamas and Fatah who are, are educating them towards violence and who, you know, t- totally exploit them on a regular basis and make their society uh, radical and angry. And when you live in a radical and angry society, then you are stuck in that in that world. 100 percent, Malka, 100 percent. And I and I made these points yesterday to a group of British religious leaders. Yeah. And they were just like so shocked. I'm like, we're the victims of jihadism. First thing, we're organic. That was, I, like, I can, you know, I was like, I was like, I put them here on the overlook of Neve Daniel, where you could see the coastal plain, and and to the south of Hebron, to the north to to Jerusalem. I'm like, we are. I told them about the Bible. I told them about the Book of Ruth. I'm like, we're from here. That's how we self-identify. We like, for us, we are the most organic people. Like, we feel these things. We feel the ancient past and our and our, and our texts. They're alive for us today. And at the same time. We also recognize what jihadism is, and we are are willing to fight it. You can you can posit that this whole conflict is about rights, as though Palestinians want voting rights in Israel. I said that they don't have voting rights in not one Arab country. Not one Arab country has voting rights. They probably like to feel safe and prosperous. Right. I said, and I talked about that exactly. Incidentally, that's what most Israelis want too. <laughs> we do want rights, and we do want we do like democracy in the sense that we want our voice to be heard and we don't want to just be used and manipulated and told what's going to be right we want to have our say in matters and and i can respect that everyone would want that but here we have a, a jewish state anyway i have to say to you that that as, as far as itamar ben Gvir is concerned um you know he's not running by himself also no like there's a whole there's a whole party behind him and you got cool people like Orit struk and but Salah Smotrich, and they're also limited. I, I I could definitely offer the critique that the national religious camp has not filled out its platform. In general, our people, I find that we're so focused also Although, on, on holding on to the land of Israel, on making sure that we have security, making sure that we have, you know, uh, rights to good education, a good Shabbat environment, all these things. Um, like I wish that national religious people were more focused on things like the economy, on international diplomacy, um, and even on things like environment and infrastructure and all these things. It's like we don't involve ourselves in those things, and then we're not experts in those things, and then we don't have visions for those things. I, I do. I must tell you though that uh, Betzal Smutrich gave a great interview to the Jewish press about his economic vision. That's good. And also, the Religious Zionist Party released a full legal platform about legal reform, which was really co-written. Yeah, that's important. Uh, by Itamar Ben-Gvir. So, okay, let's go on, Mama. Uh, there's uh, before before we go on, I want you to talk about something that happened yesterday for you on social ah. media. But before we go on, I just want to talk about for a second uh, the sponsors to our show. First, I want to talk about Retro Watch Guy in which you could get awesome, slick 60s and 70s watches. For example, I love this one right here, Mark. Do you see this one? 
Do you see this one? That's pretty. Yeah. Omega. It, it, Omega. You know, the thing is, I have a soft spot for Omega watches. Why? Because my parents used to wear it like the Omega uh. watches. They liked Omega watches. And uh, this one is, is uh, being sold for seven ninety nine ninety nine. Ooh. That's right. Uh, 800 bucks. And it's a slick late 60s Omega Cosmic Seamaster. Okay. And it's a beautiful watch. I just like it a lot. Um, it is, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's just smooth and cool. And you could have, if you had this watch just for Shabbat or for your, like, you know, your other watch, your, or your, right. like, your, like, awesome meeting All the watch. anniversary watch. There, there you go. Then that would be amazing. So that's cool stuff. Uh, and I want you to check out retrowatchguy.com uh, and let me know if you like anything there and how you like it. They're also great on social media, especially on Instagram. So check that out. And if you like watches, it, it'll it'll add something in your life. Uh, Maka, I also uh, uh, want to talk about our good friends at... Prohibition Pickle. That's right, Prohibition Pickle. I was just looking. They have such a cool, yummy-looking menu on their website. I want to highlight something called the Asado Mushroom Whiskey Bomb. Boneless short rib, slow braised with a ton of fresh mushrooms, three types, and whiskey. Ooh. That sounds, you know, it's getting a little cold. Yeah. Outside, Baruch Hashem, we had our first rain, Mazal Tov. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. big in Israel. You know when you've met Middle Eastern kids, by the way? I'm not even just saying Israeli. You know when you've met like a Middle Eastern kid? When like they come over to your house somewhere in America and it's like the middle of summer and it rains and the kids are like, whoa, and they can't, like, can't believe that they just got a rain in the summertime. So like we had a rain and the kids all went outside. Because it does not rain. It does the, not rain for six summer. months. Right. It does not rain. It does in not summer. rain one drop for six months. Right. Which always, always, always wait, makes me wonder how it can possibly be that they're having droughts in places like Texas and California. I don't I don't get it. Malka, but anyway, okay. You're bringing a lot of issues here. There's Malka. a lot of issues. Fine. Yeah, we, fine. Let me just. Can I? You were talking about now the but droughts anyway, it's, in Texas, it's all, and before yes, that, you were talking right. about uh, Middle East kids. But really, you were talking about really, the first rain. Really, I was rain, talking about the really first rain, about... and really, I was talking about the Asado mushroom whiskey bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Which just it looks very comforting. I'm looking at a picture right now of some of the food. I here. could use really some of delicious. that Asado mushroom whiskey bomb right now. Okay. And today is. Uh, prohibitionpickle.co.il that's the website don't worry about that ringing that's like that's like that's like campaign ringing it's probably yeah, it's a robocall a, hi this is bb netanyahu i yeah, want you to vote for me i need you me. to vote for me yeah i'm like okay 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 uh and of course uh of course the coalition is very important but chaim at prohibition pickle was ecstatic about your idea about having a special like uh, like food for the elections, a special like sandwich for the oh, elections. Oh yeah, yeah. He was excited about. Oh, is he gonna name it? It should have some kind of cool name. Like what? Like hmm, what could be the name of our sub, our giant submarine sandwich? Maybe we'll call it like meaty coalition sandwich. Like we should have like a like a coalition that's full of like goodness. Is that cheesy? Yes, it's cheesy. How could you talk about cheese Sorry. with a meat sandwich? So, at the what same do you time? think? What should they name the sandwich? Yeah, I don't know, Malka. Let's go on. And we have uh, prohibitionpickle.co.il, great website, and it leads you to have a lot of thoughts. Obviously, the minute you go to this yeah. website, you might think about the rain in the Middle East to the kids, Middle East kids, not in Israel or in the Middle East, talking to American people, and that might lead you to think about a delicious-looking, yummy. Stewy looking me. There you go. Okay, Malka, great job about that. Okay, prohibitionpickle.co.il. Uh, I want to talk about also our good friends at the Israel Bible. 
You can have the Israel Bible in your house. Beautiful cover, beautiful text, beautiful transliteration, beautiful commentary edited by my friend Rabbi Tully about the Bible, specifically about the issues of the land of Israel. Bang. By the way, for you Talmudic scholars out there, uh, right now, uh, the, the, uh, the learning of the Daf Yomi uh, is in the famous pages of Kuf Yud and Kuf Yud Aleph, 110 and, and 111 of the end of the, uh, the, the tractate of Ketubot. And that talks about the land of Israel. It has the very famous phrases uh, about those who, the Jews that live outside of the land of Israel are like they serve idolatry and those who, who live in the land of Israel is as though they serve God and talks about some of the rabbis and their relationship to the land of Israel and how they would roll in its dirt and how they would clean its streets and do little things just to show their love of the land of Israel. Very famous passages and very, and not, not, only one-sided. There's other opinions there. For example, the idea that you're not supposed to leave Bavel, Babylon, that you're not supposed to leave there, that it's a certain holiness because it's got Torah Unless there. Unless you're going to Eretz Israel. Unless you're going to Eretz Israel. But basically, you know, the prohibition against leaving a Torah center, other things like that, all in, 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 in the Talmud tracts, but that all comes out of the Bible. And so therefore, get your own Israel Bible, theisraelbible.com, and put in coupon code Yishai, bang, 10% off. Bang. God's word. I want to thank the folks at JewishPress.com. JewishPress.com, they do a great job at putting out the news every day. They put out an amazing article called Who's Afraid of Itamar Ben-Kvir uh, by David Israel. Amazing article. Great job and great job by our friend Steve for editing. Uh, check out their newsletter, which I like a lot. Our good friends at JNS.org. Uh, and also that's also a great news source. Uh, and uh, I want to, for, of course, thank the good folks at the Hebron Fund for keeping Hebron safe, beautiful, and accessible to all of us out there. Check out the mothers and fathers. Support them by going to hebronfund.org. Speaking of JNS, I work at JNS. I do social media for JNS. Right. And I decided we, we like to run a daily poll on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I work alongside another person, and he usually makes the polls, but he didn't make a poll. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make one. So I, here's my poll. My poll goes like this. It goes Kanye West. Wait, wait, you made a poll on Twitter. I made Twitter. a poll on Twitter. It's right. pinned at the top still. I don't know how long it will be pinned there, but it's pinned at the top. And here's the poll. Really simple. Okay. Kanye West's recent anti-Semitic remarks are, and then there were four choices. Is it Kanye? Kanye. Kanye? I think it's Kanye. Not Kanye? What? What? I don't know. I okay. think it's... Okay. Anyway, his remarks are... One. Wait, what was his remarks? He said these, he's been saying these crazy things about how Jews, uh, that he, that Jews are controlling everything and Jews, like if his kids would learn more about Judaism than about Kwanzaa, they would have like more, it would be better for them financially and that, um, that the Jews are controlling everything and like a lot of these like typical tropes, these like old school Jewish conspiracy things. So I put that up and I gave four choices. The choices were one, regrettable. His remarks are one, regrettable. Shouldn't have done that. Two, crazy. Like the guy is not well. Three, true. Just giving an option in case you believe that way. Or four, unforgivable. Now, the one and only Ben Packer told me that it's, uh, I think, number three, which is, he's just nuts. No, it was number two, which number is two. crazy. You're, so that was one of the options, that right. he's actually not okay. Right. And that he doesn't even think this way because he's not thinking clearly because something's wrong with the man. Right. 
right? So I, I put that as an option. And I put regrettable as like, listen, he shouldn't have said that, but like, we can make it better. And then I, then I, of course, put forget unforgivable, because some people are like, never again, right? right? A person says that to you, and you're just like done with them forever, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then I put this other one true, just to like, allow for somebody who has an alternative opinion right because it can't just be all negative and there's probably people out there that makes it a point who think that it's maybe a hundred percent right right okay so you put on this so i put it up and it's like going up one person another person two people when i went to sleep at night it had like 40 votes or something which is not even bad for for one of our polls actually yeah the next day i was like golly I'd love to see how my poll did. And I went to the JNS Twitter account. Ba-boom. Basically, um, the link to this poll had been put up somewhere on something called 4chan, which is like a dark web alternative platform where like a lot of like creepy crawly people operate. They went nuts basically and they started to vote and true as an option Kanye West's recent anti-Semitic remarks are true got 88% of the vote like it a massive landslide victory in the poll with 1892 votes wow okay they got wow that's amazing which is which is wild, including 1,700 likes, 214 comments. For for JNS, this is like massive, massive response. Very, very negative. And if you go into the comments, you're just like, holy moly. Why? What were the comments? I mean, like Hitler pictures. There's that like green frog. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the one is, that is like... Is that rep- green frog? It, it's some like character that represents the like hating... Like the the like bigotry community, like people who hate groups. You know what I'm saying? Not xenophobes. Like people is that, who is like self Don't like Jews. Don't like blacks. Don't like Asians. Wait, they use the frog. The green. They frog? use it as their. It's like their mascot. Okay. Okay. I don't understand why yet. No. I haven't dug that. I don't. What really about a rainbow that. flag with a? No, they don't like that either. They don't <sighs> like gays. No, but I'm saying like a nice. I'm saying for the birthday party, for Leah, we'd have a nice rainbow flag. With, with a cute little green frog. Green flag, but also the uh, the uh, the dove with the, the dove olive. With the, that sounds like that all sound? the best and a giraffe, for and a giraffe our on the other year old daughter's yeah. birthday party. <laughs> anyway, frog. so there were so many negative comments. I spent a lot of my personal time, like not the work time, but like my personal time reporting accounts um, because I'm also a Twitter activist on my own time. What 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 constitutes and, somebody that you would report? Um, somebody who puts out like openly, very boldly anti-Semitic comments. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reporting them because mm-hmm. I can use that to go away. Meaning to say, like I would like. To- but one thing that you told me that was very surprising for me is that yeah. is that a lot of them were also right. Trump MAGA. So people. I wanted to say that I what I was going to say is that I like clicked through into some of the accounts to see like is this just like some bot that did one thing one time or is it like a person who's a real creep and in a many 
many of the instances of these like very openly anti-Semitic people, I found like a lot of pro-Trump, um, anti-Biden uh, stuff. And I have to say, um, that does not actually change my opinion of almost anything to do with America, because I know that there's subgroups inside groups. Um, but I will say like that having been part of fighting left-wing anti-Semitism for a few year, good years running here, um, it's important to remember that there is Jew haters everywhere and that they really are also, you know, there are people who are so insistent that the big threat against Jews is the MAGA type anti-Semites. And they're like, Trump accepted these people into his... Um, group or whatever into his like supporter group and they are disgusting and there's no reason that we should uh, support anything to do with these people because look at these people right who are inside like these are the people right but I have to say you know I was taking my morning walk this morning and I really was thinking about this um, and I would like to make some very broad sweeping generalizations now which are that it's definitely true that there are anti-Semites amongst the MAGA people. I would find these people to be in not the minority, in the very extreme minority of people, people who really feel this way um, about Jews. And when all said and done, you, you know, we had a lot of people voting on this poll, but not like tens of thousands of people. It was, you know, 2,000 people. Um. I think that you can break it down like this. In the right wing camp, you have people and they'll be like, I hate Jews, right? They don't like Jews and they're just like, Jews are disgusting. I hate Jews. Jews control the world, um, you know, and all the like really um, typical anti-Semitism. But then in the left, you'll never find a left wing person who go, I hate Jews, Almost never. And so one would be inclined to think that they don't exist, anti-Semites in the left wing, because they would never say such a thing. They would never put a picture of Hitler up and be like, you know, we should have done, we should have gone with this guy. They would never put up a huge poster of like a thousand different Jews in the companies that they run and, and put that up as, as evidence that the Jews run the world. They would never do something like that. What they do is more sophisticated. And their hatred has turned to hatred of Israel. And they've been able to twist their actual hate of Jews, which is really what fuels their efforts. They turn that into um, a, a battle for human rights, right? A desire to protect the Palestinians, a desire to unite with people who are downtrodden, right? But in actuality, that's not what they're doing at all. They are just finding their plug-in to anti-Semitism. Legitim legitimizing anti-Semitism. Right. They, they and find it, is, it is by far a more advanced and sophisticated anti-Semitism. Right. Because, because it and actually... And in that sense, it's like a more... Intel it's more intellectually... Right. It's more intellectual. And, and, it, and it actually... And it actually... Uh, 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 views itself... It prom promotes itself as actually a philo... Of a, a pro defense of human rights, defense of things. It's not a hate at all. 
It's actually a love. That's right. It's actually a defense against these aggressive bad folks. So it's actually good guyness. So you can feel yourself to be a good guy, not just a xenophobe who's like these Jews are taking over morally my life. Morally superior. You're morally superior. It's like it's and and therefore it's attractive. It's very attractive to young people. Right, and it's and it's palatable. Right. Whereas pictures of Hitler. Right. Are not palatable. Right. But at the same time, and, and these are but I but I realize that these are really two styles, but they have exactly the same. They come from exactly the same um, underground Impulse. lava flow right. of hatred. Right. And and speaking of lava, like the floor is lava, right? Is that is that the name of the show? That's the, a show like that, yeah. Right. The floor is lava. Why did I say that? It's because you know who's between, right in the middle between right wing hate and left wing hate, the Jews. They're and they're facing it. And I do. I wouldn't know this unless I would have spoken this past summer with high school kids in New Jersey. And they're like, yeah, there is anti-Semitism, swastikas, and things in our life. Some of it is pro-Palestine. At my some of old it is college campus, on, on George Washington University College campus, there have been big posters Yeah, so that the, are intimidating students. And, and Kanye West, uh, even if he's brought down to Chinatown, right? Maybe he's going to be brought down like Ben and Jerry's, you know what I mean? Let's hope. Uh, but at the same time, at the same time, it fuels, there's, there is a seething hate out there. And really a lot of, um, and, and some of it is even understandable sometimes, like in this, not justifiable, but understandable because there are a lot of Jews in a lot of these companies. And at the same time, if you're like a, if you're like a, a right wing person, you're like, why did these people come to my country and turn into a liberal country? Why are they forcing upon me, you know, gay rights and all these other things? It's always Jews at the elite of this stuff. Uh, and so like you can understand that and they're sitting on my Supreme Court or some other minority. We thought we were a white Christian country. Now we're like not at all. And they're the ones who are forcing immigration and they're the ones that are forcing these other values and they're basically destroying our country, America. Uh, and, you know, you, you can't, I, I understand where that impulse comes from. I can understand where that impulse comes from. And, um, and for me, uh, for me, like I am oftentimes accused of supporting anti-Semites when I support a President Trump or uh, re- more recently when I said congratulations to the Italian prime minister or if I took a picture with the prime minister of uh, Hungary, uh, Orban, Viktor Orban. And so it's like, w- wait a minute, you're, 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 you're backing anti-Semites. And I'm like, well, no, I am more concerned with left-wing anti-Semitism and I'm more concerned with nationalism for the Jews for Israel. Right. I still think that left-wing Semitism is a more... Anti-Semitism. Danger- what did I say? Semitism. Left-wing, weird. Left-wing anti-Semitism is a more dangerous variant right. of anti-Semitism. But on the other hand, it is a more dangerous variant. But on the other hand... The answer to left-wing anti-Semitism is a stronger one. What I mean to say is, the answer is a strong Jewish state. You know what? For, for, let me let me reformulate that. I'm saying a strong Jewish state in the end is the answer to all these things. At the end, like when the right-wing folks are saying to you, like, "Get out! You're not part of my country." It's like you have a home country. To, to 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 rule and to control come come here and and be part of that um for left-wing anti-semites that say you know israel has got to be more liberal this and that the only way to actually survive it is to be a strong country uh, to have our own to have our, our own destiny and direction and not to succumb to their you know whims to try to undermine israel's defenses and they are really the left-wing anti-semites are really the uh virus that opens the gate to the barbarians. That's basically the way it operates. And, and, and it, but <laughs> there's so many feelings right now. Right. You know, there's so many feelings. But I think that the most important feelings is not to be afraid, 
Hashem is with us. We're in the ark. The land of Israel is the ark. The world has its like, it's undulating and, 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 and it threatens to be broken. And, and we're, we're here. We're here. And Hashem is building up this country. And if you come here, we also, as we talked about in the beginning of the show, why we want, like, why would I want to vote for Itamar Ben-Gvir? It's because there's these, there's these, uh, you know, jihadist anti-Semitism and the left-wing anti-Semitism, the Euros are throwing in their money against us. But at the same time, there's these feelings that you get here and you got it on the holiday of like amazing, immaculate peace in a sense that we're home and we're building home and that we're organic and that, yes, we have trials and tribulations, but yes, we're heading towards the third temple here in the land of Israel. And this is all part of the process of just growing right. up. I wanted to keep this this part of the show short because I have more parts <laughs> of the show that I wanted to... How did we do? Uh, we did poorly in the sense that it's uh, 44 minutes <laughs> oh, in. Oh, man. I guess we just had so much to talk about. Indeed, indeed. Maka, I, I want to thank Ben Bresky, uh, Yocheved, Moshe Herman, uh, Tabitha, and Lewin were live for making the show uh, what it is. I want to get it out to the world. Help me. Uh, give us a five-star rating wherever you can. Uh, send it to your friends. Let people know that there is such a podcast that gives you information about the land of Israel. And not just information. I think what this show excels at is the feelings uh, that we have here and how we how we live our life, how we perceive the things around us. And it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you. I, I also want to say hi to two great uh, listeners that I had the pleasure of spending time with in Hebron uh, just yesterday. And it was Ryan and Brandon uh, from Colorado Springs. Nice. Uh, and they are part of uh, a church, uh, but very much self-identified as part of the uh, International Torah Congregation cool. as well. Uh, and, and these gentlemen who are also, are also business people on one side, but preachers and teachers on the other side, uh, are really part of spreading the love of Israel, the, the love of the Torah, what I call the original testament, you know? <laughs> uh, and we had, we had a lot of discussions, you know, and I'll tell you, I was so tired. I was so tired yesterday, and my brain was being pulled in a thousand directions. And I'm like, do you guys want to eat some lunch? <laughs> They're like, yeah. I'm like, we sat down, we got some pizza in Chevron, and I'm like, just ask me anything. Just what, what are the issues on your mind? Like, and we just, and we talked for an hour like wow. that. And they, and they told me that that was one of the highlights of their time Aww. in Israel. Just because we like opened the things up. Right. And it I said real. to them. It was living in Israel, right. not just visiting Israel. Right. And they also took my advice to rent a car in Israel. Uh, and cool. they, they, they told wow, me that that brave. was an advice because I said, rent a car. That's the way to do it. It's not brave. It's normal and great. But we sat and we talked and we chatted about, about the things about Mashiach and about about the the you know Christianity versus Islam and Judaism and and where it all fits together and and we just we just talked about being part of the international Torah congregation what people out there face we 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 opened it up and it was it was it was human it was fun uh, to just chat so I just want to say hi uh, to my friends out there in Colorado Springs and bless you guys and bless all the folks of the international Torah congregation I want to thank you Malcolm Fleischer for being part of the show God yes. bless you you're the best thank you. And people really love your segment, so thank you very much. And God bless you for health and happiness. And, Amen. And happy birthday to our, to our beloved daughter, yes, Leah. Uh, remember, the show is uh, dedicated today, dedicated to Leah Batsara for Refuash Lima, for full health, full recovery. And we really wish you the best. We love you very much. Uh, and we have more great stuff on the show. I'm not going to say exactly what, because there's just more uh, surprises coming up. But one thing that I do want to play, if I have enough time, is I want to play my uh, discussion 
that I had a few, maybe last year, but maybe the year before that with, uh, with Professor uh, Joshua Berman, Professor Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman, about the Torah portion of Noah. It was one of the most moving discussions I've ever had about wow, Torah in my life. What? And many people told me the same, and I must share with you because it is the thing that proves the, 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 the beauty, majesty, and truth of the Torah. So listen for that coming up and maybe a political segment uh, with a good friend. So we have a lot more coming up on today's show. Lots of love, lots of blessings from the land of blessings. Don't touch that podcast because we'll be right back here on the Ishai Fleischer Show, the Israel Podcast, the Good Land Podcast. We'll be right back. So uh, stay here and shalom. Shabbat shalom, Malka. Shabbat shalom. All right, everybody. Shalom and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show Broadcasting live from Judea and from Jerusalem. This half an hour, we're going to talk about uh, these fifth elections, uh, the Lebanon gas deal and other gas deals and issues that are important to the Middle East and to the future of Israel. I'm joined by my friend, colleague and amazing writer uh, and editor and actually the Jerusalem bureau chief of JNS, uh, Jewish News Syndicate dot org. Alex Shaman, Alex, shalom and welcome. Thanks, EJ. Alex, um, I wanted to start our discussion today with um, a reflection. I want you to comment on it. I was sitting with some diplomats um, at a hotel in Jerusalem, and they said to me, you know, we were talking about these elections, and they said to me, well, you guys are going into fifth elections in, in so much time. Um, you know, they said the optics aren't so good, and there's not a sense of stability for Israel. Like, and I'm like, I said to them, you mean like it looks a little bit like a banana republic? And they kind of nodded a little bit. This is from a from a decent country. Uh, so I wanted to ask you kind of your your thoughts about that, like uh, f- uh, fifth elections and how long, Alex? And how does about it really three look? years? Yeah, three about years. Three years. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you what? How do you think the world sees us? How, how should we be seeing ourselves with that reality of of what is obviously political instability? Well, the first thing I always say is that uh, when the system doesn't produce a clear winner and the mandate gets returned back mm-hmm. to the people, that's correct. And it's a lot better than the alternative because you look around the world and you look around this region in particular, and most places the mandate for who's going to rule is not returned back to the people. So first of all, that's that's already good. That's a good sign. Um, mm-hmm. Second, it's, it's a reflection of the parliamentary system that we have. Israel is actually a hyper-democracy. There is just so many parties that participate in the in the elections and in this last uh, coalition, you know, in the last parliament, there was eight parties. So that is really the reason why you have this kind of instability. Um, this it's just very hard to it's hard to uh, change the system. You know, it would take a very very strong party uh, to that rose up through the current system to have the strength to change it. And any party that rose up through the system and was very strong, they might not have too much, um, you know, too much reasons or motivation to change the system. So, yeah. How do people look at us? It, it, it's, 
I definitely think there's an opportunity cost here to not having stable government. I mean, that's that's for sure. I mean, people are. Being, I mean, and the uh, cost is the, the cost is fantastical. I mean, just these elections. and I'm involved directly in these elections. I could see how much money is spent. I mean, a lot of people are making money. That's, you know, when, when, when there's a lot of costs, there's also a lot of business happening. But like the state itself is paying a ton of money for this it's, thing. It's the least of it. I mean, honestly, I mean, there is a lot of money. It's literally probably billions of dollars already, you know, over the course of these elections, but that's, it's honestly the least of it. It's the inability of a government to set, set policy. You know, and these elections actually aren't even about policy because you, you don't have the time to, to sit and develop various policies and, and to put them into place. And even after you have an election, you form a government, like the last government, we, we formed the government. You know, but the system itself uh, is so volatile that uh, you know each party is trying to get the maximum that they can out of the system, and all the parties on the outside are spending all of their time trying to crash the system. So even when you do have a government, what you have is a prime minister that is essentially spending half of their day trying to put out political fires and figuring out how to stay in power instead of actually running the country, which is much, much different than the system in the United States. Um, and part of that is because here you have to rule with the majority. In America, you don't have to rule with the majority. You can have a Republican president or a Democrat president serving uh, in office when the House and the Senate go to the opposite party. And you, you have to run the country, you know, from a minority position, but it's still stable. It's still, you're still the president for four years here. Naftali Bennett was the prime minister for a year. And the third right. election, we also formed the government. Uh, Netanyahu and Gantz formed the government together, but it, it crashed. Um, and uh, so the, it's, it's not just the election process, which is unstable, but the whole, the whole system is, is built in a, in a way that's not really um, conducive to stability. Okay, so if the elections, uh, what what are they really about? Because if you go to to some of the parties, not every party even has a platform out. Platforms are like a little bit of a thing of a past, and you get a sense that there's 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 this deep divide between what 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 these parties want. You sense that there's a there's a difference, uh, but it's not like written out anywhere. And there's there's uh, not everybody has a good platform out there. And the reason I'm saying this is because. I feel that these elections, at least, are really about a simple question, which is a Jewish state or a global democracy. It's like, do you want it to be on the more Jewish side of things and a more, a more defended against external forces and get back to Jewish roots? Or no, work with the world, be like a worldly type government and be a kind of uh, European country here in, here in the Middle East. And the if you listen to Yair Lapid, that's what he's talking about. He says, listen, you got to don't blow the shofar in, in crazy places in Jerusalem. Don't pray on the Temple Mount. Let's have a two state solution. Let's, you know, give uh, the gas to, to Lebanon. Let's kind of capitulate in all these things. And let's just get along and have a nice, decent Israeli Tel Aviv style country as yeah. opposed to, you know, folks on the right who are like, no, we, you know, we want a more Jewish state. We want to we want to we want to crack down on the jihad. We're tired of, of being bullied around. Uh, we want to hold our own and be like a more Middle East country and also more Hebrew and Jewish country. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think that's definitely correct from the position of the nationalist camp. You know, they see it that way. I don't know that the rest of the country is 
is recognizing that those are the the major choices in the election, even though I think you're right that ultimately, you know, those are the two directions that the country can go. But I don't really think that people are voting on those crystal clear uh, options. I mean, and if they were, I think you'd have a much more substantive election. Really, what all of these five elections have been about one way or another is whether or not uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is fit to serve as the prime minister. Uh, and you see that as a reflect reflected in a lot of the political ads. Like I was just driving through Tel Aviv and you see, you know, all the political ads on the sides of the buildings. And so you have merits, which is the far left party, you know, putting uh, on their sign, like vote for merits that you don't get Ben Gvir. Right. And we'll talk about Ben Gvir in a minute, you know, and then there was another s sign on a building for, Ayelet Shaked, who was part of Naftali Bennett's party, who's who's running and probably is not going to make it even into the Knesset. I'll probably throw out uh, maybe 100,000 or more votes for people that want a right wing government. But her her campaign was believe bet ain't Bibi, like without the letter bet, which is the symbol of her party, you can't spell Bibi. Right. Um, so really on on. You see, uh, and you look at all the different ads on the Likud ads. What you see is a picture of Lapid and Gantz and Mansour Abbas of the Islamic uh, Islamist uh, Ram Party. You know, all of them looking, you know, silly. And then on the Lapid ads and the Gantz ads, you see pictures of Bibi and uh, Ben Gvir again of the far right. You know, so it's it's really it's all come down to to personal. Uh, you know, uh, kind of decisions. Who do you who do you think is is better suited to run the right. country? Do they look more like this, or do they look more like that? Um, and ultimately, it might boil down to what you're saying, but I I don't think that Israelis are actually voting on on this kind of substance. Yeah, you know, you do get us. Well, th they are and they aren't. Like you speak to people, and people say like. Well, I'm I'm right wing, but I don't want the crazies. I like it's much more like I want to look a certain way. I want to be perceived a certain way. I want I I want to be on the one hand strong, but on the other hand not like too strong. You know what I mean? And and there's definitely like a cultural like like who looks like me? Who do? And I think that's actually the nature of democracy, which is in many ways you vote for somebody who looks and feels like you and therefore represents your issues or at least is perceived to. That's to why you have so many issues. parties, right? right? That's why you have so many parties here because Jews are actually not a monolithic bunch at all. Right. You know, we're a very diverse uh, bunch, which is probably very hard for people that are not Jewish to fathom. Um, but we come from all, all different shapes and sizes and or places of origin and religious views. And it's, uh, that's why Israel is a hyper-democracy. That's why it's very hard to form governments. Um, right. Right. Well, hyper democracy is not always what it's cracked out to be, uh, especially yeah, since look around the world. Democracy is not looking that great right now. That's we right. You had a prime right. minister in uh, Great Britain for 45 days after you had a prime minister resign, you know, over scandal. The American democracy is looking as uh, least appealing as ever. And it's uh, it's not it's not a good moment in history for for democracy. I'm excited and, about the new British prime minister, though. Cool guy, pro-Israel, wealthy, successful. Looks kind of cool. Be. Uh, could could be. be. All right, we'll, yeah. we'll see about that. Uh, that's a different topic, a different podcast. Today we're dealing with Israel, and that's what this show is about. It's about what's going on in Israel and, and, and spreading that light out to the world. That's another thing. You know, you know Alex, I was uh, at CPAC and I was speaking, and people were like, on a religious level, I love Israel. 
Uh, but I was very unhappy with how Israel handled COVID. And so people on the American right were like, well, on the spiritual, you know, biblical connection, I'm with you. But then how you behave, I'm not quite with you. Uh, is Israel sends a lot of mixed messages for people who are like biblical people. It's not always doing that thing. It's not always sending that signal. And then for people who are, you know, on the liberal spectrum. So just yesterday I toured religious leaders of the UK. Uh, and I mean, they were as so-called liberal as possible. It was hard for them to even swallow the ideas of Jewish nationalism and the right of Jewish strength. I, I spoke to them in, in their language. I went American Indian on them. I, I talked about our tribal lands and I talked about, you know, our indigenousness and, and indigeneity and our, and our history. But my point is, is that the, um, what Israel broadcasts is unclear. And here's, here's my political question for you, Alex, which is, uh, and you can comment on anything I just said, but, but give me, a, give me a, a short, not too much inside baseball, but a sense for, for everybody out here. What are the voting patterns going to look like? And will there be uh, some hope of any kind of coalition for this uh, fifth election? All right. Well, first, I do want to comment on what you're saying. I think that the, the main question for outside people that are outside of Israel and, and nobody really understands Israel, not too many people in the world. And the question is, is Israel a racist country? You know, or is Israel not a racist country? Is Israel on the uh, oppressive side of this whole newfangled uh, intersectionality in critical race theory? You know, is, is Israel the victim class that emerged successfully? You know, or is Israel the oppressor? You know, so that's the that that is the question. And, and, and it does come down to what kind of messages that we broadcast. And we broadcast a lot of mixed messages and we confuse a lot of people. And it, it's it's very, very complicated. Our enemies, by uh, by contrast, you know, always manage to stay on message, whether it's true or not. But it actually helps to, to sow a narrative with regard to because, because they have because they have a tight message. A very, Absolutely. very tight message. Yeah, they, very, very they've small developed tight it and, they, right. and they're willing to stick to it. You know, right. here you can you can ask, uh, you know, it's the old uh, Jewish proverb, you know, <laughs> two Jews, three opinions. Right. You know, so you can hear you can hear three Jews or two Jews, you know, opine on what should be done on any kind of major diplomatic or security issue. And what one is saying is completely the opposite of what the other is saying. And when and. You know, for us as Jews, we're used to that. Like our our entire law, you know, our entire system of Jewish law is like 25 books of of rabbis having like the most bitter arguments, you know, about the very small details and some of the big details of what the laws actually are and how do you how do you perform them? And for us, that's part of our secret sauce that makes us uniquely Jewish. But for people that like if any other nation or peoples had laws, you know, like we have 613 laws in the Torah. If they had 613 laws, what it would be is a list. Number one, here's the law. Number two, here's the law, right? And that's not how that's not how Judaism works. And so for people that are not Jewish and they, they're not taught through that methodology, when they hear two people saying completely polar opposite uh, you know, views on how to deal with one topic, what they think is at least one of them is lying and maybe both of them are lying. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to our enemies, we'll, we'll stick on message and it's, it's marketing one-on-one. If you want somebody to believe something, you just have to say the same thing over and over and over again. 
So we we fail marketing one on one class, and I think that that's why uh, we have. Well, a problem. I don't know if we fail. It's just that we cannot fulfill that particular mandate of message discipline. We are not the sure. people of message discipline. That's just not our thing. Yeah. We have other strengths, but that's not it. Before I, before I uh, let you answer the question about the uh, constellation of of a co potential coalition, let's just for a second look at some of the comments. We're we're getting a shalom. Good afternoon from Ari Mac. Shalom to you, sir. Marilyn says, Shalom from North Carolina. Shalom to you back. Marilyn, haven't heard from you in a while. Uh, Evo says, Shalom from Croatia. And Erke says, Shalom from Indonesia, Jakarta. But Omar, he has something else to say. Omar says, Israeli occupation forces assassinated on Sunday, pre-dawn, the Palestinian young man, Tamer al-Khalani, in the occupied West Bank city of Nablus. Uh, of course, uh, Omar, I don't see it that way. I see it as the IDF uh, targeted a terrorist uh, who was killing Jews uh, in the ancient biblical city of Shechem. So you see here, Shechem. So you see here that it's a, it's a very different, uh, it's a very different narrative, of course. And that's why we're discussing on the show. Okay, Alex. So uh, we're seeing that there's a lot of different narratives out there. Uh, the end narratives turn to votes. Uh, and tell me if you believe that we're going to have a viable coalition come November 1. Well, you know, when you look at the polls in the run-up to the election, what you actually see uh, for the last several weeks is that neither uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, right-wing block nor the what I call the blocking block that mm -hmm. wants to prevent Netanyahu from... Uh, returning to power have a clear path to a majority government um, and it could happen right and there's a lot of different reasons why it could happen um, number one is voter turnout um, if more people come out to vote you know more on the right more on the left that can certainly impact the elections and one of the election cycles the second election cycle uh, Likud soared to 36 seats because they campaigned heavily in towns on the periphery where there was traditionally low voter turnout, but the people that live there are more aligned with the Likud philosophy, and they brought out 250,000 votes that they hadn't brought out in the previous election, and that allowed them to surge to 36 seats. Um, so, you know, that type of uh, scenario could could impact the elections the americans are you seeing are that are you seeing like a like a do, do you feel that the disaffected unaffected that the people who are like frustrated with the system were like am i coming out to vote again like, there's a lot of people going, we, that are, are they going to the hey, beach yeah. or are they going are they going to uh what do you call it like I'm, saying, I'm not i'm not voting anymore forget it you know like people feel burnt you know that they've right. voted six times and they feel like it's the it's the role of the parliamentarians to count when the votes are counted to figure out how to sit together and work together. Right. Like, you know, you don't have to like everybody, but you have to put the country before the personal interests and, and to figure out a way to govern. And basically four times in a row already, the politicians have not figured out a way to put their, their petty party interests aside in, in order to serve the, the people. So people are frustrated with that. Um, so voter turnout is one of the, the big issues. Uh, you know, one of the side stories just relating to voter turnout is that the United States has actually invested a lot of money in a get out and vote campaign in the Arab Israeli areas. Right. 
And, well, let's uh, get that straight. You're saying that the American uh, uh, embassy here in Israel, and it has been shown that the American embassy is putting money towards organizations that are involved in the Arab-Israeli community, especially to create a get-out-the-vote campaign, to get them to vote so that there will be more Arab representation in our Knesset. And you're like, what? are you saying that America is trying to influence the outcome of the Israeli democracy? Well, that's uh, that's happened consistently over the last uh, many years. You know, I interviewed um, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Friday, uh, and he has a new book out, uh, which is his memoirs, essentially. And, and he said that Clinton basically admitted to him point blank that he uh, invested a lot of effort and energy to prevent Netanyahu from first becoming prime minister in, in 1996. And uh, later, President Obama had State Department funds allocated to an organization called V15, which was um, specifically helping then uh, Labor Party leader Bushi Herzog uh, in his efforts to knock off Netanyahu as the prime minister, and, and which is incredible because Herzog t- is now the president. And today, just days before an election, he's actually in the United States. Um, and you've had several Democratic uh, um, congressmen and senators, including uh, Robert Menendez of New Jersey, who has been a uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, and um, Brad Sherman, a Republic, uh, representative, Democratic representative from uh, from uh, Illinois, I believe, um, both of whom have been longtime supporters mm-hmm. of Israel, warning Netanyahu against forming a right wing government, which include Itamar Ben Gvir. Um, so there is pressure from the United States. Uh, they clearly prefer, the Democrats clearly prefer that Yair Lapid would be the prime minister. And so by getting the C- Arab... Clear, c- clearly prefer is, an, is a euphemism for a medal in, yeah. it, it, towards to, to, to get their candidate. Again, like you, the way you say it, Alex, it just comes out sounding so natural. But like we're talking about the United States well, meddling. In Netanyahu talked to me extensively about it. And at the end of the day, he says, you know, I don't interfere in American elections and I don't think Americans should interfere in our elections. But uh, that's been one of the MOs of uh, the United States uh, foreign policy, not just in Israel, but around the world for many years. In part, though, it's also because of American Jewry uh, and uh, and. For that matter, also like British Jewry came out very strongly at some newspapers. It, it might be a very small minority newspaper, but it's called the Jewish News UK out of London. You know, came out saying it's an outrage that uh, Itamar. Ben-Gvir. I don't think it's a small minority. Um, I don't. I don't think it All is. Right. And, All right. My yeah. my point to you is that uh, an element of that is not just foreign intervention, but actually foreign Jewish intervention, which I also say is is not uh, is not right. It's it's okay to love Israel. <laughs> It's okay to have an opinion about Israel. But when I was asked by these religious UK leaders about that, they're like, well, you can understand why this and this uh, uh, potential uh, minister would be odious. I said to them, okay, yeah, sure, I can understand. But at least I would, I would frame it with, we, of course, respect the right of Israelis to determine their own leadership. But the American Jews, the British Jews, and others, they feel that Israel is a reflection on them, and therefore they have a right to opine. Or maybe, not that they so much have a right, it's that it's a virtue signal, you know, they're virtue sure. signaling that I'm not that I am not that. And maybe Israel's well, that, but I need to distance myself because I'm here in the UK. And I need to appeal to other people I need to show myself to be not ultra nationalist. Well, what was amazing was that the same people now that 
are so upset over the possibility that a right-wing nationalist might be a minister in a future government is that you had an Arab party that was affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, which was ostensibly supporting Hamas and their positions that was invited for the first time into an Israeli government. And that was being promoted as diversity, right? You know, and, and the reason why is because it, their participation in the government brought every single left left wing member of Knesset off the backbenches of the opposition and into into the coalition and into powerful ministries, including the foreign ministry, including the defense ministry. And ultimately that ended up with Yair Lapid sitting now as the interim prime minister, uh, who was the head of the progressive left in Israel. So, you know, when you get left wing, then you're able to permit a lot. But uh, when things shift to the right, and Israel is a center-right country, which is much, much different than most of the most powerful Jews in America and in UK who are who have been, you know, voting for the Democratic Party in the United States or the Labor Party in the UK uh, for many, many years. And what happened in America is that, you know, Republicans over time that as they reconnected to their Christian roots and America is a Judeo-Christian country, you know, they saw Israel. And the rise of Israel is being important to, to them, you know, on a deeply spiritual, religious level and a moral level. And as the two parties United, in the United States, Republicans and Democrats, have become more and more polarized, the Democrats looked at the other side and they said, wow, the Republicans are really fervent in their support of Israel. We're going we're gonna to drop this ball like a hot potato. Uh, and they have allowed for, like I said, Israel to be to be played on the wrong side of the intersectionality issue. I mean, we Israel should be the model for intersectionality, and they have somehow allowed us to get played onto the oppressor side of it. And I think, in part, that's because uh, you mean, you mean that you we should be the model for for an indigenous people returning to its land or uh, uh, resecuring its its basic ancestral rights, et cetera, like, uh, Even, like a minority surviving. Correct. I mean, it's obviously the biblical history, the indigenous history, the you know the the language. But even it, even if you can't look back three thousand five hundred years, and you just want to look back in the last hundred years, the Jews are a peoples that uh, survived an actual mass genocide. Okay, of the right. worst order. Okay, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we suffered an actual ethnic cleansing where 800,000 Jews living in countries all over the Arab world were, were forcibly expelled from their land. And then they resettled in the country that the League of Nations had partitioned to be a Jewish state because of all the reasons that you mentioned. And then that state got slashed into half and then slashed into, into quarters you know, by the international community. So we've been cheated over and over and over again after coming out of a genocide and ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And, and yet we, we've managed to succeed despite all of that. And now we got played onto the oppressor side. Okay. Hmm. And, and, and then the liberal Jews in America, they blame us for that when it was really their job to play us into the, into the model for the intersectionality. So it's, it's an unbelievable hypocrisy. Uh, that we've gotten we've gotten played into into the side, and so the Democrats just dropped us like a hot potato, um, and um, yeah, we 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 suffer from that. I mean, we 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 didn't see it happening, and and we we are we have a difficult time picking up the pieces and feeling figuring out how to deal with it. That's right, that's right, <clears throat> and and you'd be amazed. That was very well said, Alex. 
Uh, and you would be amazed how deep uh, the contra anti-Israel uh, thinking is. It's so deep that it's like normative. And like you, you give them the other side. You know, yeah. I, I had a, a Jewish lady said to me yesterday, I've never met a settler before. <laughs> I was just like, are you serious? She's been, I've been in Israel eight times. I never, it's like, you don't know where the biblical heartland is. You yeah. don't know who these people, like, it's so out of touch. In any yeah. case, let, let me just get back to that question because I do want, I want to I get an answer from you, which is, um, let's just talk about how you see the voting patterns and a potential coalition because at the end, we're not just voting. We we want a stable government of even even if it's not as stable as could be, but something that has a that has a stability. Well, okay. So to understand it as simply as possible, exactly half of the voters in this country want a, a traditional right wing government that supports religiousness, that supports uh, in some degree of Jewish nationalism. There is um, a significantly smaller portion of the country that is left-wing um and there are also those that have joined in with the left wing because they specifically don't want uh netanyahu to be the prime minister of israel anymore i mean he was the prime minister for 15 years already um he is facing uh, various corruption charges which i don't think we really have time to get into but just in one sentence they would not hold weight in an american court of law though Every single one of those cases would have either never been charged to begin with, or would have been dropped, uh, you know, or mistrialed already. But that's that's the reality here in Israel. Um, and then you also have Arab parties who similarly don't want to see a right wing nationalist government, so they also have aligned uh, with with the left um, and have formed essentially like a blocking coalition they're not ideologically aligned as we saw with the last government the last government had left-wing arab and right-wing members who all simply didn't want netanyahu to be the prime minister and ultimately you can't govern like that because you have your oppositions inside your own government um so the question is as it has been the last four election cycles as well can Netanyahu and his block of right-wing allies pass this majority threshold of 61 members of Knesset out of 120? You need 61 in order to be able to survive no-confidence motions, which come up every week in Israel. The right. opposition is always trying to destroy the government week after week. So you need to have a majority in order to stay in power uh, and even to present the government to begin with. Um, and there's a lot of different... Uh, different factors which will determine whether the right wing will cross that threshold. Um, part of it's the voter turnout, as we said. Part of it is a is a voter threshold for for different parties. A party has to receive at least three and one quarter percent of the votes in order to make it into the Knesset, which is essentially a four seats or no seats um, threshold. So if you don't get four. Not only do you get none, but everybody that voted for that party, uh, those votes get completely discounted and taken out of the of the total. And then all of the rest of the 120 seats get redistributed without those votes. So if you have small parties on the fringe and you do, you have a, a lot of parties polling right at above or below this threshold. If one party gets in. Uh, that can be a four seat swing, uh, you know, for for one block or the other. And and if a party falls just a few thousand votes short or 
even a few dozen votes short. And we saw that in the second election cycle. Naftali Bennett's party, his own party, came less than 10,000 votes short of the threshold in the second election cycle. Uh, he didn't get in. And instead of four seats going to the right, those seats got all those votes got thrown out, you know, three point, however many seats worth of uh, votes got thrown out and then they get redistributed. So two of those seats essentially go right to the other side in the redistribution. So, and that was the reason why Netanyahu wasn't able to form a government. So there are several parties, including um, Ayala Shaked's party polling below the threshold. Um, two of the Arab, actually all three of the Arab parties polling either slightly above or slightly below the threshold on the left side of the spectrum the merits party the far left merits party and the labor party are both polling near to the knesset threshold any one of those parties making it or 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 failing to cross the threshold could swing the entire result of the election wow that's a that's a that's a math person's like heaven it's like it's like people who love baseball statistics it's like and i know that those guys you know there's a few people like that that we know that they like they understand all these numbers and it's also, it's pretty, um, it's pretty nerve wracking because like the day of elections, you get the first polls and, and this and that, but then it changes, it shifts and it takes a few days. Right. Cause there's 120 days. seats, right. Uh, and there's only a hundred percent of votes. So you have to divide up a hundred percent of votes into 120 seats. So you first, what happens is at 10 o'clock on the election night, the minutes, the polls close, what you get is the exit polls because each of the major TV stations is sitting outside major polling booths and they're trying to ask people when they walked out who they voted for. And you get a fairly decent uh, representation of what happened, but because there's so many factors, they the exit polls can be off by you know one or two votes this way or that way, and and that can swing the entire the entire result of who's the prime minister and what the what a coalition actually looks like. So so they actually have to start counting the votes. And in Israel, you don't have electronic voting booths. Everybody votes by hand. You take a piece of paper, you vote for a party that you want. So you don't have a direct vote for the prime minister, by the way. You also don't have a direct vote for your representatives. You vote for a party. The party's seats are divided based on the number of votes that they get. And then it's the parliamentarians who ultimately decide who's the prime minister. Um, right. And and so the votes are counted by hand that that counting begins at 10 o'clock at night on the eve of the elections. It takes until the, the morning to get 90 percent of those votes counted. Um, by the way, you do have to present an identification and your name gets like double checked off lists over here. So there's not right. like and you have to vote in in the polling in the voting booth. voting booth in a specific in, booth. Even In fact, in fact, Israel's yeah. laws are so so strong and they're so strict. I even think a little too strict, because, for example, one thing we don't have in this country, which is would swing the elections very much, is uh, voting uh, for people outside of the land of Israel. If you're on a trip. You cannot go to an Israeli embassy. Correct. There's no absentee vote. voting. No absentee no ballots. Abs no absentee ballots, with the exception of diplomats or people that are on a were sent on a shlichut, which is basically less than a thousand people, or maybe right. a, a few thousand people totally. So there's no there's no such thing as uh, as absentee balloting here. Um, and ultimately, it takes it takes up to forty eight hours to get the precise final one hundred percent numbers because. Again, when you do this division between 120 seats, if 
if a thousand seats get counted one way or another, that can move a seat from one party to another in the distribution. And if it and if if it shifts from the left side to the right side or the right side to the left side, that could that could swing the entire election. If if Netanyahu forms a government, it's going to be by the skin of his teeth, right. probably right. in this election. Do you think let's let's go to prediction time because that's really fun. Uh, although <laughs> although although you know the the Torah warns us against you know uh, necromancy and, and and trying to you know do false prophecy. But okay, in your learned opinion, uh, do you foresee a situation? Uh, that Netanyahu gets 61 plus seats, or do you see another hung uh, Knesset, uh, or do you see some folks defecting if it's 60 or 61 seats? Do you see some folks defecting from parties that had traditionally Kudnikim in them? Uh, what are they now called? The the Machane Machane uh, Mamlachti is that what it's called now? They, they, they also that's another thing, they, alignment, right? Because right, that's that's not what it means in Hebrew. But in any case, um, what, give me your prediction. For these coming elections, I, I think it's it's Netanyahu or or a stalemate, right? It's if Netanyahu can get to sixty one seats, then he will form a right wing government. If he can't, I don't see how uh, Yair Lapid or anybody else will be able to form another government. Um, but there can be surprises. There's been surprises. There's no precedence here. I mean, even though right. we're now on on situation number five, like there's going to be something that that breaks the situation and it's it's hard to see exactly what what that scenario is going to be unless of course uh you can get to a uh a right-wing government which i think is the most stable of the options that are before before the state of israel right and um you know as we say here in israel fifth time's a charm and so it's <laughs> there's definitely an opportunity i think there's also uh the you know sometimes here in Israel they talk about the surprise of the elections the the party that kind of jumps out ahead there's been many examples of a, a party that 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 somehow balloons or mushrooms and 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 gets out ahead I think that the consensus is is that the religious Zionist party uh, with uh, Smutrich Betzal Smutrich and Itamar Ben uh are is is a potentially surprise party there is uh, ultra orthodox Jews that want to, young ultra orthodox Jews or unaffected disaffected folks in the periphery. Uh, not to mention folks in Judea and Samaria who do want to vote for this party. There is a chance, uh, and uh, that's that's exciting. I, I am yeah. working for the Benkvir party and, and trying very hard to promote that, uh, although in this uh, discussion with you, I think we try to be also objective to... Um, well, yeah, I mean, the religious Zionists are polling at 14 seats, uh, which if, it, if that number holds, they're likely to be the third largest party in the right. government, which would be a, a real first for... For any kind of uh, nationalist, religious, Zionist uh, formations, have never received so many seats in, in a government, or even or combined seats, and you know, it, among various parties in, in a government. So that's certainly a surge, and becoming the third largest party also is uh, that's a kingmaker position uh, in a sense. Um, and uh, you know, it's 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 certainly exciting. And I think that the reason why that's happening, why you have this party, you know, to the far right of the spectrum uh, surging in the votes is because what you've seen in, in previous election cycles, even before these five elections is that people have voted for what they considered moderate right-wing parties because they feel like they're, they're right-wing moderates and, you know, but they've seen, 
uh, right wing parties time and again form governments together with left wing partners and ultimately uh, enforce left wing policies, including like when Ariel Sharon, you know, announced that he was going to disengage from from Gaza, you know, from Gush Katif. Um, that was after he surged to 40 seats, you know, which was, uh, you know, like a very, very high showing for the right. Everybody thought like, wow, we've got a, a super strong right wing uh, government now. And and he ultimately enacted left wing policies. So I think that right wing voters, they want to make sure that that the government that's formed is a right wing government and that the policies that are enacted are right wing policies. And so the only way to protect that is, is to go to the farthest right flank of the political spectrum with their votes. That's right. Uh, Just a few more people saying hi out there. Anzor Davarshvili says Shalom from Georgia. And he does not mean the state in America. He means the country of Georgia, obviously. So Anzor Shalom to you. And we have uh, Bruce says Shalom from Chad's. Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. Awesome. Uh, and we have uh, Alyssa who says, Bizrat Hashem, with the help of God, there'll be a conservative coalition to preserve the integrity of a Jewish homeland with a continue with a continuing traditional values uh, or continuation of traditional values. Alex Trayman is the Jerusalem Bureau Chief of JNS, JNS.org, one of the finest news organizations out of Israel today, uh, not just covering Israel, Israel and the Jewish world as well. Uh, I love your emails, Alex, and you're doing a great job. You also put out a great article that's been translated into five languages about 10 reasons why the Lebanon gas deal is not a good deal and the issues with it. It's a very, very in-depth article, and that's why it's been translated. I hope that everybody gets a chance to check it out. We wanted to discuss it today, but we ran out of time. Uh, Keep up the good work, Alex, and we'll talk with you after elections. Good luck to the state of Israel. Uh, and good luck to Am Israel and to uh, the people of the world who are looking uh, to Israel to be a light unto the nations. Thanks so much, Ishai. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. Thank you very much, Alex, for being with us. Uh, that was a great discussion. Next up is, uh, if you're listening on the podcast, is my talk uh, from actually last year or the year before, I can't remember, but with Rabbi Joshua Berman, an amazing discussion uh, about the Torah portion of Noah. Uh, and and the biblical criticism against it and the proofs for the authenticity of the Torah, of the Bible, uh, from a real academic sense. That's coming up on the podcast. If you're listening to me right now uh, on the live stream, uh, then I want to bless you uh, wherever you are. Thank you to all the folks uh, from around the world uh, that are with us today, all the way from Croatia and Georgia and uh, the United States and people all around the world. And also we had, uh, we had somebody from, uh, where was, which country was that from? From Indonesia, Jakarta, that's right. Uh, That's really awesome to be with you, and it's an honor and a pleasure to use this uh, platform of technology to reach the world with the light of Israel. And thank you for reaching back and reflecting that light wherever you are. Stay tuned, stay connected. More great stuff is on the way, and shalom. All right, everybody, shalom, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea. You're a part of it wherever you are. Torah portion of Noah. Noah, the ark. There's been movies made about, about it. Uh, there's been many stories. If you go to any toy, toy store, you'll get like you could get a Noah's ark uh, type of, um, you know, a doll or toy or, or model. Uh, they have puzzles that they make out of it. You go to any kind of natural history museum. They always have uh, stuff to do with Noah's ark. The Flood, it's a great story. There's comedy routines by Bill Cosby. Uh, everybody knows the story. It's just one of the kind of foundational stories uh, of humanity. 
And it's not only written in the Torah and in, in our Bible. It's also written in other uh, ancient Near East, East uh, documents and stories. And so it's just a very foundational story. And yet it's mysterious. There's so many mysterious things. There's repetitions. Uh, there's uh, just a question like, did God flood out the world? Um, there's the the comparative na the, co the comparative narratives between the Gilgamesh story, for example, and others, uh, and the Torah. There's the whole uh, 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 raven slash dove uh, 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 saga. There's many other questions. Also, a technical question: How was uh, Noah able, if in indeed it happened, in fact, how was he able to feed all those animals? So there's a lot of questions, uh, and and everybody loves it. It's so colorful. You know, you could you could even buy like bed sheets with with these things, and there's animals coming out. There's something so imaginative about it, and yet at the same time, something not so humorous about it at all. We're talking about the destruction of the world. We're talking about God's wrath. We're talking about uh, the 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 a deluge that flooded out man and animal and insect and and birds and and and, and everybody had to die except for one a lonely family uh, on a speck. Uh, the 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 epitome of loneliness uh, and the epitome of death that leads to rebirth and there are other questions. Uh, I love this Torah portion. I think it's it's gorgeous and 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 interesting and 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 all those questions are fun if you love Torah. And uh, I was privileged just about two years ago to sit in a class uh, of Doctor uh, Rabbi Berman uh, Joshua Berman and I got the chance to hear Chidushim understandings. Uh, in Parshat Noach, and in really an understanding of what Torah is telling me, uh, that blew my mind so much that I went back to the internet, looked for those lectures, found them, and I said, I, I have to bring him on the program if he will come on. So uh, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman is a professor of Tanakh at Bar-Ilan University. He's a graduate of Princeton and of Yeshivat Haaretzion here, not so far in Gush Etzion. Uh, he's the author of two academic books and five books on the Torah. So he's got a lot of books underneath uh, his um, belt, including uh, one that's coming up right now, which is called Ani Mamin, uh, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He's been published in, in all the uh, you know important magazines dealing with the Bible, and he also serves as the international on the International Advisory Board of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> and anybody who listens to my show knows that I've talked about many times how incredible, how moving uh, that uh, edifice and 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 the contents within are it's really one of the one of the wonders of the world. On top of that, uh, Rabbi Berman uh, is also now uh, taking his hand at tour guide. He is going to be taking people to Egypt and to study uh, Egypt and to see Egypt in the footsteps of the Exodus. We'll see if we could get a few words about that as well. Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rabbi Ishai, and uh, hello to all of our <clears throat> viewers and listeners here in the Holy Land and abroad. Awesome, awesome. So um, I don't know how many people get a chance. I hope I didn't do too much volume. And first thing, let me also welcome all of my friends, uh, including Lou Weiss, uh, who helps produce the show right now. And he says, he says, looks good and sounds good. Lou, I upped my volume a little bit. Let me know if that's too much. And our good friend Erica from Sweden says, Shalom. Shalom, Eric. I missed you. Long time no speak. It's been the holidays, and it's been, uh, um, <clears throat> and I even got a little bit of a cold, so you'll have to excuse me. And it's just a regular cold, so everybody relax. Um, so it's been holidays, and, and it's been the summer, but we're back, Erica. And Evo says shalom as well. 
So people from all over the world uh, are coming in. And Lou says it sounds really good. So that's our, our go ahead. Dr. Berman, Dr. Rabbi Berman. I like doctor and I like rabbi. So, so it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of titles there. Um, rabbi. Rabbi. <laughs> let's stick with rabbi today. Rabbi. Um, let's talk about Parshat Noach. Um, first thing is, wait a minute. This, this Torah portion, unlike all the other Torah portions, is a Torah portion that is found in very similar uh, language and ideas not totally, but but you've pointed out that there's up to 17 points of similarity between this narrative, the Torah's narrative, and the Gilgamesh narrative. Tell me a little bit about what is the Gilgamesh narrative, and why would the Torah have something that's similar to, to another culture's narrative? Right. So um, the story of, of, of the flood, the, the mabul, as we call it in Hebrew, <clears throat> uh, beyond the, what we find in Chumash, uh, we know from our study of ancient sources, particularly from uh, Mesopotamia, ancient Babylon, Assyria, places like that, that there were uh, uh, flood stories that floated around in those cultures as well. And not just the general idea that once upon a time there was a flood and there was a guy who was saved, but like with incredible details that are very similar, building a boat, bringing all the animals on board, uh, even down to when the waters began to recede, uh, the figure that appears in those uh, Mesopotamian versions of the story, they send out a raven, they send out a dove, then wow. the waters totally recede, the guy gets off, and he offers sacrifices. So that it's really very, there's a lot of similarities. So much so <clears throat> that um, many people uh, uh, will claim that the Torah seems to be familiar with this uh, uh, Mesopotamian version in something called most famously in, call, in, in the version that's found in something called the Gilgamesh epic, uh, which predates the Torah. Um, uh, and uh, the, the Torah is familiar with this, but not merely just kind of copying in a, in a, 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 in a kind of a gimmicky way or as in, in a plagiarizing way, but rather in a polemical way. And let me explain what, what, what's going on here. That this is a story that has so many copies of it so so widely distributed throughout the ancient Near East that it means that everybody knew about some version of this story. And uh, this story captured the imagination, even as it does to this very day. Rabbi Yishai, your, your whole introduction just shows, you know, people are always fascinated by this story. There's something about it that just really strikes every person across all ages as a really good story and something that makes you think. And so therefore, what the Torah is doing is saying, okay, we're going to give you our version of the story, but with some significant changes. And the significant changes aren't the number of animals or this bird or that bird. There are two really, really major differences that we find in the Torah's version of the story of the Mabul and uh, the other ancient Near Eastern versions that we find. Uh, big, huge difference, number one, is why is there a flood in the first place? When we look in these other versions, what we find is, and I, I'm not, you can't make this up, okay? What I'm telling you, it's there. You can't make this up, is that the gods uh, uh, were troubled because there were too many people on the face of the earth and humankind was making too much noise. This is what it says. Too much noise, which was disturbing the sleep of the gods. And so therefore, the gods wanted to find a way to limit mankind. And they wound up wiping out the whole world. Okay, 
When we come to the Torah, now we get some, a different picture entirely. The world is destroyed not because uh, God's sleep was disturbed, because the ancients, they thought of the gods as their own selves, their own human king selves writ large. So just like kings like to have a good schluff every day, so so too the gods, the gods like to have a good schluff. When we come to the Torah, the reason that mankind suffers is because of his own misdeeds, because of his own sins, because there was evil in the world. The Torah is the only version that we know of that makes this point. Number two is that in the Mesopotamian versions, in this Gilgamesh epic, the end of the story comes to the following, that the gods realize, uh-oh, we've wiped out mankind. Who's going to build our temples? Who's going to make sacrifices for us? Okay, okay, so we're going to recreate mankind. Ah, but now we want to find a balance between having enough people to build our temples and to bring us the sacrifices, but not so many people that will have our sleep dis disturbed again. So in the Mesopotamian version, it ends with the recreation of man, but then the installation of all sorts of breaks to keep uh, human reproduction limited. So that means some people will be infertile. It means some babies will be born stillborn. It means some women will serve as priestesses and therefore not have relations. And all these together will keep human reproductivity limited. We come to the end of, of the story of the Mabel, the flood, in this week's Parsha, and it's remarkable. Noah steps foot on land, and the very first thing that Hashem says to him is, fill, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the land. Fakert, as they say in Yiddish. 180 degrees different than what we find in the Mesopotamian version, and I would say a ringing affirmation about the value of human life. Mm -hmm. So so what you're saying is the Gilgamesh doctrine, first thing, it wasn't really dealing with morality, and here comes the Noah narrative, and it's dealing with human morality, and God is demanding morality. He's disappointed when we're not moral, willing to destroy the world if we're not moral. Mm -hmm. And at the end, uh, God is pleased uh, with with Noah's survival, and he says, "Okay, you know, be be be, be have fertility, fill this world," as opposed to the Gilgamesh folks who are like trying to limit human reproductivity. So, okay, so 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 according to yeah. this, just, 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 just let me say, Rabbi Yishai, uh, yeah. uh, us being good Torah Jews, uh, uh, I should mention these aren't my the, what I've told you now is not my my chiddush. It's not my original idea, and we should bring a, a geula redemption to the world by saying the source of this. These ideas were, were identified by a wonderful Jewish scholar named Tikva Frimerkensky, uh, Zichrona Livracha, who passed away at an untimely age. Uh, and she was a Jewish scholar uh, uh, and a very incisive, a very incisive uh, reader of Chomish and of ancient texts as well. I have not yeah. heard her name. And uh, mm -hmm. can you say that name again? Tikva Frimerkensky. Well, those are, those are indeed awesome insights. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to ask a question for those people who would ask it, kind of, I, I hear the voice out there of people saying, so are you saying that the Torah portion of Noah, instead of reporting facts, is a kind of social commentary on practices of the Near East, understandings and narratives in the Near East? How is that a foundational human story to be put as the second Torah portion in the in the book of Bereshit, which is the foundational book of of humanity's you know relationship with God, so you, is is that what you're saying that this is like a this is like a 
what do you call it? Uh, you know, uh, political political comics. Is the you know is this a, is this a kind of satire or, or re-understanding yeah. or, or is this? Oh, I, 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 listen, listen. Yeah, I th I think that many parts of of the Tanakh and even within Chumash uh, are polemicizing, arguing with ideologically, um, um, and often satire of well-known works that were out there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Could well be this. This this is a little different. It can be that, and there can also be maybe some historical background that's actually historical fact about the Mabul. Uh, our great sages uh, 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 were not of one opinion about this. So I'll just I'll just throw out one one opinion, just so people know that it's out there. Um, uh, Rav David Svi Hoffman, who was the greatest posek, the greatest uh, halachic decisor uh, in Germany at the turn of the at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, and also a great master of Tanakh and of biblical criticism. He knew all this stuff. He writes in his commentary to Sefer Breshit, he says, well, it's a little hard for me to accept that there was a mobble that covered the entire world because science doesn't see that that happened. That, you know, we don't have just, you know, ge geological evidence of, a, of, a, of a, a flood over the whole world. So he says perhaps it was a localized flood in Mesopotamia, uh, uh, at the time, and this was a kind of a rhetoric the Torah used to say, because that was the whole world as far as the people who were living there were concerned, and so it, it describes the whole world. That's just one, I'm not saying right, wrong, you have to accept, I'm just, you know, it's interesting that a man with a very long beard, you know, very from, huge Tamil Chacham, uh, uh, actually said such a thing. Mm -hmm. It must be pretty important for the Torah to enter in such a polemic uh, with uh, that that narrative if it's going to put it at, at kind of you know because slot number two. Um, another thing that that strikes us when we read Parshat Noach is is we have a general sense that the Torah does not waste words is laconic, and yet there's repetitions. Uh, and phrases that are not, you know, easy to understand. For example, animals are called husband and wife, and we're not kind of used to the idea of animals that even mate being understood as husband and wife. And other things within within um, within that Torah portion that is hard for us to to kind of it, it's unusual. There's a structure there that's unusual, and your research has shown that, that there's a very clear structure underneath it all. I wanted to ask you, like, what what's with the weird structure in Parshat Noah? Okay, let, let me let me uh, give a, a kind of an overall methodological point that's raised by the Ralbag of all people, one of our medieval uh, classical uh, uh, exegetes of the Torah, um, um, and it's it's a really really important point, not just for for the story of the Mabul of the flood, but just generally. Uh, the Ralbag or of Levi Ben Gershon, who lived in the 14th century uh, in Provence in, in France, uh, he writes at the end of his commentary to Sefer Shmot. He entertains the famous question at the end of Sefer Shmot that uh, the parshiot of the Mishkan uh, seem to be repeated just you know the, in all their detail twice. We have the giving of the of the of the commandments of the of the Mishkan, uh, the tabernacle, of the, yeah, yeah, the tabernacle and of the the priestly garments uh, over several chapters at the end of Exodus, and then after. The, the story of the golden half, we have the story of the actual execution of all these details. Right. So it's like, follow. it's like, do this. And then it's like, and they did this. And it was like the do this and the did oh, this it's, are it's mirrors. Like, do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. And then Batsala went and he did A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, and J in all their details. That's exactly what right. there is. And there Bag says, you know, I'm really bothered by this. He says, because where I live today, in France in the 14th century, 
we believe that that a, a work of literature that is perfect is a work, as you said, Rabbi Yishai, uh, a work that has nothing superfluous, where every word has meaning um, and, and significance that, that that should be evident to the, to, to, to the human eye. And the Rabbag says, you know, I don't know, doesn't seem like the Torah really needed to go into all this detail the second time. Just say, Moshe. The Petzalel did everything that Moshe Rabbeinu or that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had commanded him. And the Rabag says that he looked hither and yon. All, this is a famous question. Anybody who's learned Sefer Shemot has probably uh, uh, encountered this question. And the Rabag says, I looked everywhere and I never found an answer that I liked. And then he says, so it must be that at the time that the Torah was written, this was the accepted literary style. Vahanavi yedaber lefi haminhag. And the prophet, which in this case is Moshe Rabbeinu, will always speak according to the conventions of the time. And that's so fascinating. It shows such humility on his part that just because something isn't clear to me today in 2021 or in the 1400s, doesn't mean that it wasn't clear to a previous age. We have a very limited view of reality. We think we see the whole picture, especially right. us. We have Google, we have everything. We can see farther and bigger and wider than anyone before us. And I wonder whether really it's the opposite is true. But we see, we're so influenced, we don't even know what we don't see. Uh, and, the, and the amazing thing is that the Rabag was spot on that we find in so many ancient uh, compositions exactly just what we said before, a king will instruct his servant, go and do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then the narrative will say, the servant went and he did A, and then he did B and C and D and, and, and all the detail. The reason it's that way, by the way, is because uh, when, you, when you write things that way, it makes it a little wordy, but it makes it easier to remember, to put into memory. And they were memorizing all of these compositions. And that's why they did it that way. Uh, and so I think the fact it's memory, that, but but I would I would also throw out to you that it's not just memory. There's something, um, there there's 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 a kind of perfection in okay, in perhaps. for example, okay. God saying, "I'm laying out to you what I want you to do," and then you do it, mm -hmm. and and you kind of the text proves that they yeah. did it. There's a fulfillment. There's something kind of more whole. It's like another side of the pyramid. About it, that's true. Right. That's true. But I'm right. saying that this is something that's really quite common. Okay, even when right. it's not God's talking. Okay. When it's any figure of authority or hierarchical stature, okay. Now here, here in in the story of the Mabul, the Mabul, I would say, even relative to the rest of Chumash, is uncharacteristically. Just, just to uh, translate, Mabul is the flood, the oh, deluge. Flood, okay, yeah, I'll speak in it. We have we have also folks from all over the world, Doctor. Right? So they're all welcome, and they're all they're all dear to us. Okay, I was that's right. That's right, in, in, including including. Uh, just let me say hi to my friend Desmond. Uh, yes. Who says shalom? And my all friend Alice, shalom. Jewish and Christian faith, yes, uh, and, and all others. kinds of others, and, and others. Faith. We have okay. we have folks here from all over the world. Uh, uh, Jay White says, "Amen." Chodesh Tov, gentlemen. Have a great rest of the week. May Mashiach be revealed in public anytime now. And a warm Shabbat shalom to both of you and your families. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, and uh, who else we have here? We have. Uh, uh, we don't. We don't. I, the Christian stuff is not something I read. Uh, and then he, Lou, my good friend and co-producer here says, wasn't the first part of the Mishkan's instructions and the repeat, the actual construction? Yes, Lou. Yes. That's exactly what, sure. what Rabbi Berman's saying. He's saying, but it didn't need to do that. It could have just said, and they did it. And that's it. 
uh, and, and you know, and Betzalel did it. But the question is why why this uh, full description of what is requested and then what is done, what it could have been shortened, and then you could say, you see, the Torah is very laconic; it's very t tight on words. And and Rabbi Berman is saying that is the uh, um, that is the 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 way that things were written back then. That's how people understood it as normal back then. And there's many other literature in the Near East that that mirrors that that way of writing. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now here, as I began to say in the story of the flood, uh, the, the story of the flood is, is, I would say, uncharacteristically really messy. Messy in the sense that there's a lot of repetition and it's very difficult to plot a kind of a chronology as you work through the 77 verses of this story. It's, it's, right. You cannot read it and say, well, verse two follows chronologically. What, what, what is described in verse two chronologically follows what's described in verse one and, 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 and so on and so forth. You'll see it can't work. Things seem to be jumping back and forth. So let me just say that when we have a natural expectation that a story will simply proceed in chronological order, one event after another, uh, that which all probably everyone listening or watching this this uh, 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 this discussion will say, yeah, well, that's just that's just obvious. That's just natural. I will tell you, friends, that that was not obvious or natural to ancient writers. This was very natural and obvious to Aristotle. And when and Aristotle wrote a book about what's called poetics, and all of us, all of our natural senses of what makes good sense in terms of literature, stem from him. And so if, even if you've never read Aristotle, if you were speaking English, if you were raised in the Western world, the air you breathe and the thoughts you think without even knowing it all come from Aristotle. But mm. the Torah was not written by Aristotle, okay? And nobody who was reading the Torah in the time of, 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 of Tanakh knew anything from Aristotle. But they knew about other literary conventions, other ways of writing from the ancient world. And I want to show now uh, one convention, one kind of way of writing things that we know is very common and, and explains, I think, the, the, what looks to us as un, the unevenness of the story of the, of the deluge, of the Mabul, and suddenly, poof, everything looks different. So, Rabbi Yishai, I'm going to try to share now our screen, okay? Okay, let's play the share game. We'll do our best okay. here. Okay, here we go. One minute. Stay tuned, everybody. And uh, in the meantime, while, while uh, Rabbi Berman prepares it, just want to say hi to everybody out there. It's so fun to be live with you again here on the Ishai Fleischer Show. We have uh, our rabbi, Dr. Berman, with us, and he is the author of many books, uh, including the uh, upcoming, or it's actually it's already available on Amazon, Animamin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. So check that out. Uh, it's easy to, to buy right now on um, on Amazon. And also he's going to be taking people on tour to Egypt. And uh, that's going to be through Kesher Tours. And this is not just a tour uh, to, uh, to shoot the rapids, to shoot the cataracts uh, on the Nile, but rather it is in the footsteps of the Exodus. So you're going to see uh, Moses in the, uh, in the reeds. You're going to see the splitting so of the Red Sea. You're gonna... So much stuff in Egypt that just illuminates the Torah incredibly, especially the story of the, of the Exodus and especially the construction of the tabernacle. So it'll be the first time, what? it'll be the first trip to Egypt, an organized trip that's kosher, that uh, that has the aim of looking at these great sites in Egypt through the eyes of the Bible. And the I think that sounds that. great. I yeah. think that sounds great. It's it's a commitment 
of both time and money. It, it is a 10 yes, day is. tour. Is that correct? Yes, it is. That's right in January. Right. And the, the, the details are at Kesher Tours, Kesher with a K. K, like kosher, but with an E, Kesher. Kesher right. Tours. That, you can find it all there. That's right. I have okay. it up here. Uh, you can see Kesher Tours. Uh, and I think Lou should uh, should uh, should head out to Egypt with you. And I already sent the link to my mom. Uh, but Lou says, "Is the book available at Pomerantz?" Because that's yes, that's it where is. he gets the Yes, books. absolutely. Pomerantz is a good friend of mine, and he's a tzaddik. And uh, uh, yes, yes, he has my book. Yeah. As I recall, Mr. Pomerantz also needs our prayers for Fuashlema. Oh yeah. Oh, still okay. Wow, okay. that's right. I think yes. it's Michael, Amen. right? I think it's Michael, and, and, yes. and uh, he should yes. be blessed and and uh, and have uh, yes. uh, very yes. good. Let me get back here to banners. Fine, and I see now that you have sent up. Okay, <laughs> excuse me. Let, let, let me explain what this is. You can see it clearly, uh, Ravishai. Yes, I could see it clearly enough. Anyway, okay. go okay. ahead. Yeah. Okay, part of it. Okay, all right. Let me. What I've done here, okay, uh, is um, I've taken. Uh, the verses, or, or yeah, the verses of the story of the deluge, and I've laid them out in a certain way. So here, for example, the first, the first, the, the first psukim, the first verses of the story of the deluge, we have Elohim, God pledges to Noah to destroy all flesh, and then there's mention of flood to destroy uh, uh, all flesh. And then God says that uh, he's going to make a covenant to sustain Noah and his animals. And I'm just kind of following the order of the verses. Now, I've set this up. You can see clearly in a certain way. What happens here is this. This is something called a chiastic structure, very common in the ancient world. What is a chiastic structure? It's where you have a composition. In this case, the story of the deluge, the Mabul. And what happens is that the first verse or the first few verses make mention of something and that element what i've called here element a elohim or elohim god pledges to noah to destroy all flesh that will be repeated the first element will have a mirror to it in the final element the last pasuk the last verse of the story elohim pledges to noah to preserve all flesh. It's the opposite, mm. right? In other words, the, the, the first verse, Hashem pledged to Noah to destroy all flesh, kol basar, that's the word that's there. And the last pasuk, the last verse, whoop, whoops, let's just get that back. Yeah. The last verse, Hashem pledges to preserve kol basar. That's right here. Okay. Now, can we do can we do another example of that throughout the uh, like before we get to the the center one, like another like glaring example of uh, the chiastic structure sure. okay. of okay. relationship. Okay. So right, okay. So that, that's kind of that's kind of uh, that's kind of general that one. So for right. example, um, how about this? Uh, um, uh, we have here uh, uh, the H element. Seven days of waiting for the flood. Okay. And the parallel one in the second half, seven days for the waters to subside. Mm -hmm. uh, or pretty good. Um, once the mountains are covered and the mountains are covered, then the Torah says that for 150 days, the waters prevailed. Okay. Then parallel to the O, oh, the 150 days that the waters prevailed, 
we have 150 days the waters abated okay mm -hmm. and if n was the mountains were covered then n prime is the mountain tops were visible okay mm -hmm. uh and 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 on and on um uh for example the k1 the torah says that once noah entered the the uh, the ark that hashem shut him in like hashem kind of as it were uh shut the hatch okay uh, on 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 the ark that's k and then what we have here the parallel in terms of the order of the verses is that noah opens window mm -hmm. of the ark okay opening up the uh the hatch okay now now what's so interesting about this is that you skip almost nothing when you set it up this way and what's so fascinating is what is at the center the very center what's at the very center is chapter verse one which says, Hashem remembered Noah and everything that was in the Teva. Meaning, this is the inflection point. This is where everything flips. Everything until chapter 8, verse 1, was destruction, mabble, deluge. Everything following chapter 8, verse 1, is recreation of the world. Okay? Um, and so it's exactly at the center. And I'll say something uh, further. Uh, I have a, a good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Ronnie Benham of Flatbush, New York, who discovered the following thing. When you look at the entire story of the, of the deluge, from here, from where it starts until where it ends, it's 77 verses long, okay? And the inflection point, this, this verse, chapter 8, verse 1, of those 77 verses, it is the 39th verse, okay? That is to say, it's exactly at the center, okay? There are, there are uh, 38 verses before and 38 verses afterwards, and this is exactly wow. in the center. So it's in the center in terms of the number of, of verses in the whole story, and thematically, when you lay out what's happening in every two or three verses, it also happens to be at the center. So... The idea here of whoops, I'm sorry, of chiastic structure is that you know if we sometimes think, well, the most important part of a story is the end. You know, what's the bottom line? What was the finale? You know, what was the last scene in the movie? Uh, in in ancient writing, sometimes it was what was the middle point of the story? That's mm. where everything turns. And so okay, I got, I got to I got to stop you for a second. I got to stop you for a second. Yeah. Um, I put up a good friend of mine and who's a real intellectual, my friend Nachum wrote the uh the word which was an onomatopoeia he wrote wow and and the reason i put up the wow is because when i saw this uh two years ago my reaction was wow for a person who loves torah and knows that 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 it's godly and wants to understand this this strange and and when i say strange i mean that in a in a in a in a complimentary way that's a strange and an interesting torah portion um, and when you, sh when you show this chiastic structure of the whole Torah portion and how it, it matches up and, and how it's, you know, the, and this middle point, this inflection point of that Hashem remembered uh, Noah, I, I, I don't know, for me, it was like a, you know, it, it was, it was a wow. It was an aha wow moment. It, it was just like, yes, uh, like, 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 like a, something, uh, you know, opened up and I understood it better. And uh, just today, as I was uh, reading the Torah portion and preparing for my podcast, um, 
I focused in on on that very like I understood now what the what what the what the what the big point of the whole Torah portion was, which is that Hashem remembered Noah. We read it, of course, on Rosh Hashanah as well. Uh, and 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 then also what what's what's so and and you could you could find a way out of it, but if you are looking for it, the beauty of the and the order of the Creator in this story, and and the purposefulness, and of course you use this is also an answer to the uh, biblical critics who I may call scoffers. Uh, maybe you w- wouldn't use that term, but I would. Uh, and you use it to great extent as an answer to the folks who say this is written by multiple authors and there's all kinds of interlacing authors in this whole thing. And that's why it's good jumping back and forth. And suddenly you see the, the chiastic structure. You're like, you're like exactly like Nachum says. You're like, wow. And, and the, the unity the brilliance, the beauty, and the message uh, come out very clearly through this. So I, I really needed to stop you and point that out. So go ahead. All right. Okay. But I want to show something that that, that, that that to me is 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 even more wow. Okay. Okay. All right, Rabbi Yishai. Okay. Okay. I'll, br- um, I'll put on a seatbelt. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. All right. Uh, let me start with a, a comment that, that the Ramban, Nachmanides, Okay, 13th century, tremendous uh, uh, Torah sage in all areas of Torah, and who wrote a very influential commentary on Chumash, on, on, on the Pentateuch. He says that on this verse, God remembers Noah. That Hashem remembered everything, remembered Noah and all that, all that was living inside the, the ark. The, the Ramban says that at this moment, uh, which, as I've already noted, you know, from here the news is all, until here the news is all bad, and from here the news is all good. Uh, the Ramban says that that the the Almighty at this moment of chapter eight, verse one, um, it, it it occurred to him at this moment that he desired to recreate the world, and you know you can see what that you know that 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 seems to make sense. Yeah, you know the world is being put back together; it's becoming habitable again habitable again for human beings. Now, with that in mind, that this that this verse begins a process of recreating the world, well, let's look at this table, okay? When we go through Parakhet chapter 8 and 9, which are the part of the story, this all good news, you know, the world coming back together, what you can see is that sequentially every step of that process follows in order steps that happened in the account of creation in Genesis 1. So that, for example, if we have here uh, in chapter 8, it says, Hashem, the Almighty, passed a wind over the water. Well, on day one of creation, it says that the divine wind was passing over the water. And... uh, 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 if we had in day two of, uh, of, 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 uh, of the account of creation a separation of the waters of the higher and lower firmaments, here in the account of recreation, the Torah says that Hashem blocked the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky, also separating out big bodies of water. Day three, the first thing in Maaseh Breshit, the appearance of dry land, Vatera'e Yabasha. And here in chapter 8, the appearance of mountain peaks near Ur Rosh Harim, right? 
passive voice, just like here, but Teira is passive, near U is passive. Uh, day three, second part of day three, is the day on which vegetation is created. And the next thing that happens here is that the dove returns with an olive branch. That's a sign that the world now has vegetation. Next thing that happens is that uh, on day four of creation, Hashem creates the sun and the moon to distinguish between day and night. The Torah tells us that the dove returned le'et erev, at evening time. Well, what is evening? Evening is a mix of day and night. In other words, there's notions now of day and night. Day five of creation, Hashem creates the birds. The next step of Perichet, the dove, the Yonah, leaves the Teva, the ark, and doesn't come back. That is to say, it enters the new world and stays there. It's like birds are being recreated. Day six, creation of animals and man. The next thing that happens in chapter eight is the disembarkment of Noah and the animals. They too take their place in the new world, back on earth. Um, uh, there's a command in, in, in Masa Breshi to, to Adam Arishon, to uh, uh, the first man, to Adam, to be fruitful and multiply, and that he's going to have sustenance, lachem those words in Hebrew, and the same thing. Noah is told, be fruitful and multiply, and he's told about the things that will be lachem Okay, So, you know, this shows, you know, even greater purpose of what's going on here, and it shows that what the Ramban said is really correct, down to a level of detail that I, I don't know if, if, if even the Ramban noticed it, but it seems to be very, very clear and deliberate. Um, so I think, you know, this, these are kind of ways of looking for patterns that, you know, aren't so uh, natural for us today. Um, even in the Middle Ages, I, I'm not a familiar with any of the classical Torah giants that, that identified this, but in every age, people have their own different literary sensitivities. And thank God today we're able to kind of reclaim and recapture some of what was going on in the time of the Torah. Okay, so so gonna... Lou Weiss uh, leaves a message and he says, wow, number two. That's right. That is a wow number okay. two. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad Lou shares my excitement about this. That's yes. right. And it is exciting. It is exciting. And it gives us, uh, it gives us a real uh, sense of, of first thing, first thing, if, if you, if you will it, if, if you want to see it, it is uh, mm -hmm. clear that the hand of God is here. This is written by a master author, uh, a, mm -hmm. a master editor. Uh, and, and the other aspect of it is um, now we understand the Noah story. Like, really, God destroyed the world and wanted to rebuild it, and he took it step by step and rebuilt the world and gave it a second chance. It gave it a second chance, uh, gave it a rebirth. That's very powerful stuff. Um, yeah, th th this is this is why I wanted to bring you on. I wanted to talk about Parshat Noah and give people a, give people a sense uh, of all that. And yet, there are still awesome questions lingering. What are these two different birds? And 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 then, of course, the whole issue of the Tower of Babel. And those of us who were in in New York City on on, on the September eleventh, two thousand and one, you know, saw these great towers fall. And and I remember thinking, my my God, like, can I learn something from? And this was around the same time. Uh, of uh, of uh, wow. the the, the right. story of the Tower of Babel, we we felt it very powerfully. Then, boy, was that a physically powerful experience! Wow, wow, it's almost un, uh, undescribable. But it was, you know, that literary thing that the Torah thing that we had just read uh, came back to us. Uh, so that's uh, that's an awesome experience that you've given us. I want to really thank you for that, uh, uh, Rabbi Berman. Uh, and I want to ask you about uh, what you're coming up and uh, what you're going to be doing. Very soon in January, you're going to be taking people to Egypt uh, to have these kind of experiences with you on the ground. 
in Egypt's land. Hey, isn't there a problem of going back to Egypt? Uh, is that is that is that a is that a halachic challenge or 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 what? Not that I know of. I mean, I don't. You know, we're not going to buy horses. So I don't think that there's a problem with that. And uh, right, yeah. yeah, we're not going to be sent back. So tell us a little bit about what's going to be on your trip there uh, in Egypt. Right. So, you know, friends, just like I, I hope that uh, that all of you shared in the excitement that I have every time that I that I read or teach or teach this material uh, that, wow, you know, who would have thought, you know, these these ancient ways of thinking, these parallels that we, we didn't really know about, that suddenly things just come alive in three dimension and in multicolor. Uh, and the same thing happens when you visit Egypt. Um, uh, the, the type of polemicizing that I discussed earlier, how the Torah is taking a story that was well known about the, about the deluge and it redoes it and it tells it in a different way. And you only understand, you only appreciate that if you know the original that, that, that it's arguing with. Well, friends, this happens with the story of the Exodus too. It turns out that the story of the Exodus in Sefer Shemot, as we have it, is also polemicizing with inscriptions that you can go and see in Egypt. And you can see pictures of, of, uh, th that are remarkably similar to the Mishkan and understand why the Mishkan looks like some of the things that you're looking at. And it's all from the right time period. And of course, the Mishkan is taking place against the backdrop of the Exodus from Egypt. It's just mind-blowing stuff. It's mind-blowing right. stuff. Um, uh, my uh, mom, my mom, who's visited Egypt twice, told me many times, she oh, said to me, oh, if you want to understand the Mishkan, Go down to Egypt and you'll oh understand, you know, many pieces of the Mishkan. That's exactly oh, what she told me. Yay, mom. Wow. Gee, that's absolutely. Cool. Yeah, that's right. doctor mom. Okay. That's a doctor mom. It's a serious mom. Dr. I got mom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good. And you also have your, your book that's already out right now, which is called Animamin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and 13 Principles of right. Faith. Everything, what about we, everything we did here today is, uh, is in that book. Uh, and just generally the types of questions that people, some people have, uh, once they're exposed to this stuff called biblical criticism, you know, uh, uh, was there an exodus? Do we have to believe that everything in the Torah uh, is factually true? Uh, how do we deal with repetitions and sometimes contradictions in stories, contradictions in the Torah's laws, um, and much, much more? So I, I try to I try to approach all of that from an academic uh, standpoint in a way which I think is also uh, 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 true to our to our traditions as well. Right, I guess I guess you're you're exactly like uh, like the Torah itself. On the one hand, polemical. Well, I, I don't know about yeah. that, but okay, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> right. On the one hand, polemical. On the other hand, uh, you know, on the, the the doctor side, and then there's the uh, the rabbi side, the Torah side, okay. and both of those coexist. Uh, okay. Mark Pickles, a good friend of mine and a great writer himself, writes, "Wow, thank thank you both, enlightening and inspiring insights." Mark is from England, uh, and D Alberti asks. Will the tour be given in English? I'm guessing. Oh it's yeah, English yeah. Language. I should have said yeah. that. Yes, this is for for English speakers. Yes, yes. Right. Because you also do teach in Hebrew, right? Am, sure, am, of I, am I right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Of mm -hmm. That's what we do in, in Israel. We also teach in Hebrew. Absolutely. So thank mm -hmm. you, D. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Lou. And uh, thank you, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, who is a professor at Tanakh, uh, Tanakh the Bible at Bar Ilan University. Graduated at, uh, at Princeton and Yeshiva Haaretzion, author of five books and many articles uh, on the advisory board uh, of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., a highly recommended place to visit if you're there. Uh, we talked about the new book on Imamin and the tour to Egypt. Awesome stuff. And uh, we talked about Parshat Noach. We opened up a Tzohar. We opened up a, ah, a window, uh, window. For, as we learned, right? A window into, in a, into understanding. That's right. Nice Very good. Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining us, and God bless you. Rabbi Yishai, thank you, and thank you all the listeners and viewers. Shalom, shalom. 
All right, everybody, God bless you, and thank you so much for being with me. Lots of blessings from the land of Israel, where Torah comes to life, where Torah comes to life, and where 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 something that that you just didn't didn't know five minutes before becomes, you know, a, you become aware of it, you understand it, and suddenly, wow, Hashem has shown a light upon you, and there's a knowledge in your mind. You're like, this is one amazing Torah portion, and if you uh, like Mark and Lou and and Nachum stayed along and and, and learned and understood that. You'll never look at Parshat Noach again. And that's a blessing. And that's a big schut for me to be able to bring that to you and to bring uh, Rabbi Berman to you today. What a schut it is to, to learn our Torah and to send it forth from Zion. Uh, Catherine says, thank you, rabbis. Always learn something new and inspiring on Rabbi Ishai's programs. It's a big schut. God bless you, folks. More great stuff is on the way. Thank you, Lou, for producing the show. Thank you to my wife for making me tea and taking care of me here. And uh, lots of love and blessings from the land of blessings. And shalom.